Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, we're taking a departure from oncology. We've got COVID, COVID, COVID. We've got COVID on schools. We've got COVID and Scott Atlas, and we've got COVID policy broadly. I'm joined by Vladimir Kogan. He's an associate professor at The Ohio State University. I've got Jay Bhattacharya, Stanford University. And I have a dialogue with Dan Morgan about the things Scott Atlas said, whether they're right, wrong, or we just would have said them differently. So you won't want to miss this episode. It's all COVID, no monologue. I got too much for you this week. So buckle up. Here you go. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm back here on Zoom, joined by Dr. Vladimir Kogan. Dr. Kogan is Associate Professor of Political Science at The Ohio State University. He's joining us from Columbus, Ohio. He is an expert on many things in political science, but with a particular focus on education, and it's so timely. Dr. Kogan, thank you so much for joining us on Plenary Session. Hey, thanks for having me on. Big fan of the podcast. That's an honor uh, Honor to be a part of it. Well, I'm honored to have uh, to have you as a listener, because you know what? Um uh, I know you had a chance to pick up the reversal book a while back, and you're not the typical reversal reader because you're not a you're not in biomedicine. But um, you know, I really appreciate that you felt like there are some analogies between biomedicine and political science. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you know, one of the interesting things in the social sciences, um, we have something called the the credibility revolution, where mm. in the last twenty years, it's been a focus on really causality and yes. going beyond correlation and making credible inferences. And yes. so that book was exactly on that question, right? Of how do we know whether something really does work? What's the right way to ask that question? I see. So I, and, I learned a lot from it. Oh well, thank you so much. I, I I'm learning a lot about the social sciences every day. Um, and I learned a lot from you from some private discussions that I, I'm grateful for. Um, and I'm still learning, trying to figure out what you were telling me. Um, but um, I guess I would say that I think, you know, what's so interesting with social science is um, we can agree um, that the stakes are um, almost tremendous importance. It's literally the, the fate of nations, the fate of civilizations, the fate of many, many people. The stakes are really high. And so um, energy we spend trying to do a better job of asking just simple questions like, does doing X actually do what we think? That's good energy, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about, I don't know, maybe just broadly, what is your sort of, your your topic du jour is education, and you were mentioning to me how voting affects educational outcomes. I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit before we talk about COVID. Sure, yeah. So, we have in the United States, we have kind of an unusual education system when you look, when you look, uh, internationally. So we have an incredibly decentralized system, mm -hmm. right? So we have over 10,000 school boards That's that really right. make key decisions that affect students every day. They decide what the curriculum is. They decide what content standards are. They decide what it takes to graduate. Um, and those are locally elected boards. 
And so one of the things that, that me and my, my co-authors, I think, realized is um, you can't understand student outcomes. You can't understand educational policy without understanding that local political process that determines who makes that policy, right? These are locally elected school boards. And so we got interested in understanding ultimately how do, they, how do the decisions that voters make on election day, whether it's electing a school board or passing a school tax or a school bond, how does that actually affect students in the classroom? Now, I'm kind of dumb, but uh, on the question of school boards, do school boards, are they partisan in the traditional way we think of partisanship? Are they Democratic and Republican school boards? Or is there more sort of complexity and variation in, in, the, in, in the sort of the philosophies of school boards? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so it depends on the state. So, so some states actually have partisan labels on the ballot. Wow, when you go really? Vote. Yeah. Um, so that's the exception. Yeah, you know, most states, there are nonpartisan elections, but the people who run for those offices are partisans. And so I think what makes school boards unique is that it's seen as a stepping stone. So if you want to run for the state house, you're going to start off on city council or a school board. I see. And so you tend to get kind of, um, I guess, I guess I'll say political hacks in training mm. who want to, who want to run for higher office. And so that's their, their stepping stone. And so a lot of the partisan interests are involved in these elections and recruiting candidates and fundraising for candidates, um, and putting together slates with other offices. So partisanship, even in what are nominally nonpartisan races, partisanship seeps in. That's important to know. And then I guess my next sort of fundamental question would be, um, do school boards have a lot of latitude in setting educational policy or are there like state level rules like you got to do X, Y and Z and those really kind of steer the ship or do these people really steer the ship? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Um, and again, I think I think what makes it complex is, is the answer is, again, it depends on the state. Um, so the states provide some framework. So you're in California, for example. And so in California, school boards get to pick the textbooks, but it's going to be from a list that the state provides, I right? See. So the state, the states often provide some, some, um, some constraints. The states often determine what the graduation standards are, but there's still tremendous discretion. I'll, and I'll give you, I think, three areas where there's the most discretion. Yes. Um, so there's been a lot of interest, I think, in disciplinary policy, right? And racial disparities and discipline. Well, that's set at the local level, right? It is. How, yeah. how schools, treat students and misbehaviors, that's a local policy. Um, there's uh, policy decisions related to transportation and things like that. Um, I think the one big one is, you know, the number one function of local school boards is to negotiate contracts with their employees, mm. uh, covering things like compensation, but also covering things like how teachers are allocated, making sure that there's equity, making sure that, um, you know, that, that, that the people teaching in the schools have the right credentials. That is fundamentally a local decision, right? How that's I done. See. Um, and so I think that's the area where school boards really have the most influence is negotiating the terms of employment with school employees. And that's important because there is a large and, and rather convincing body of literature that choice of teacher does matter, even if that teacher is as removed from the child's outcomes as the kindergarten teacher. Um, uh, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, I guess, I guess I'll put it two ways. I think one, we know that, um, much of what affects student outcomes is really determined outside of the classroom. It's parents, things I like see. that. Okay. But of the things that schools have control over, of the in-class environments, teacher is by far the, the biggest and most important. Um, and so, you know, if you take a really disadvantaged kid and you give them one of the best teachers and you have them get the best teacher for eight years, you can close much of the achievement gap. So teachers are incredibly important. And unfortunately, in this country, we also have huge disparities, even within school districts across buildings and the quality um, and experience levels of teachers. I see. And we also have, 
I mean, I think a, a rich debate that I don't have all the answers on uh, because I'm an empiricist and I'm not a politician. And there's a rich debate on whether or not unions empower students and teachers or whether or not unions prevent innovation and prevent us from pulling bad teachers. Uh, any thoughts on that uh, in a nutshell for those of us who don't well, know I, too much? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a controversial question. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I think you know, there's trade-offs. I would say I think, I think okay. there's trade-offs. I think uh, we have evidence you know, on the margin that you know that 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 unions advocate for some things that are good for students, but then unions also advocate for some things that are often not good for students. I right? See. They're there to represent the interests of teachers, and so I think it depends on the extent to which, on a particular issue, the interests of the teachers as a whole and the students align. And I think that's an issue by issue uh, thing. I think COVID and school reopenings is a great example where maybe the interests of the students and the adults are not aligned. Yes, yeah, so sure we'll get to that. Yeah, that's that's what that's the that's the main course. Um, but I'm glad you allude to that. Um, and I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you. Um, I think about background is, um, so the paper by Raj Chetty that I think you and I once corresponded on is a paper that links kindergarten teacher choice to child career earnings, really. You're nodding. Yeah, 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 yep, absolutely. So, so Raj Chetty has done a, a couple of work. So he has that paper on, um, on kindergarten teachers and they look at kindergarten because that was a, there was actually a nice randomized experiment. But they've mm. done some other observational work leveraging other kind of causal designs, not quite as strong as randomized experiments, but also showing that later teachers later in life as well affect, but not, not just earnings, but things like, um, you know, things like probability of going to college, um, probability of being in the workforce, probability of having kids um, before a certain age. So teachers have tremendous consequences and, and we have, you know, other research. So there's some great work on using randomized lotteries to charter schools. And so I there's see. one in particular by two economists, um, looking at the Harlem children's zone. And so if you win the lottery to go to a high quality charter school, you not only do better academically, you not only do better in the labor market, but you're much less likely to get, to be a team mom, much less likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. So what happens in the classroom really affects a tremendous number of these downstream later life outcomes. And it has not been, I mean, I guess maybe it has been, but there is certainly reason to believe that what happens in the classroom, you know, you've alluded to some things that one would think would not be linked to the classroom, being a teen mom, um, uh, uh, being involved with the criminal justice system. Um, one, socioeconomics is linked to the classroom. And insofar as socioeconomics is a major driver, there's another Chetty paper I think about, which is um, someone's income percentile and, and wealth percentile and longevity. And there is a huge gap in this country that people who are wealthier live, I think in that, it was a JAMA paper, I think it's about 20 years longer than people who are poorer. Um, I wonder if you talk about that for a second. When you think about education, do you think about longevity? Is that tied to education? Yeah, well, so I think I, I think of it, um, yes, I think of it in a slightly different way. So yeah. so that so I think the work by Ross Chetty is incredibly important. Uh, and one of the things they, they identify as as a determinant of longevity and all these other things is, is neighborhood effects, right? That where you live affects all these outcomes. Yes. And so we want to think about what is it about the neighborhood? And the neighborhood is a bundle of things. Yes. Part of that is safety and public safety. Uh, part of it is housing stock quality. But part of it is also education. So in this country... Um, in some ways, we have a crazy system where your address dictates which school you're assigned to. And so I think it, education contributes to these relationships. And I mean, it's, I'm not going to say it's probably the main one for longevity. I'm sure. sure public safety and things like that matter more. But it's certainly, I think, part of that equation. Yes. Okay. And and, and I guess I would say that um, I, 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 I echo that. And I think to some degree... Um, 
the ability to move yourself from one sort of wealth and income bracket to another bracket um, is a good harbinger, I think, of improved health outcomes um, because of all the sort of challenges that are faced in this system for people in the poorer health and the poorer income brackets. Um, and, and, and so, so you're not a child psychologist, but the other sort of, you know, we're talking a lot about the sort of the practical, um, the practical way in which education policy decisions affect the lives of children. Um, but there is also an emotional development side of it as well. Um, I, I don't know if you'll feel comfortable speaking about that, but you know, it, it is important that kids at some age interact with other kids of some age uh, to learn social norms, to have normal social development. Um, there's questions of whether or not if they miss out on some of those in-person interactions, there's increased anxiety or suicidality or, or things like that. Um, I wonder, do you feel comfortable talking about that or do you feel like that's a little one step removed from what your interest is? Uh? Yeah, I mean, I would, say, I would say I'm probably not the expert. That's one step removed. But I think, I think you know, in, in that, I would say in the same bucket, I think the out-of-home interactions are really important. Part of it is because of the peer effects. We know peer effects are really, are, are really valuable. Mm -hmm. But also part of it is interacting with adults. So I think yeah, one of the tragic things we've seen during the current COVID crisis is a huge decrease in reports of child abuse. And that's because that's often gets caught in school, right? Yes. So I think when we're thinking about overall well-being of children, right, schools are important, not just not just for the learning, not just for the for the interactions with, with students, but it's actually with adults. Um, in many lower income districts, that's also where students get their meals on yeah. the most consistent basis, right? So if you're not in school, you're not really eating, or maybe not eating as well, not as consistently. So I think that that's all part of this experience, um, and and you know I think it's really important to keep all of that in mind. Before I came on to talk with you, you know, I've been spending the last couple of weeks reading about education. You might notice because I've been tweeting about it a little bit. And I guess, I guess, um, I don't want to pretend like I know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. But what I do worry about is we've reached a place, particularly in the online forums, where we can't really have the debate. And and by that, I mean, I think there are very well-intentioned people whose background is infectious disease. And they look up at the scoreboard and every case of COVID is a stab in their heart. And they want to keep that number the scoreboard covid cases as low as possible and if you if that were your sole goal in life you would put everyone in their own individual room you wouldn't even and you just lock all the doors and you do it for you know 21 days and covid gone bye bye covid but we can't do that with people people are gonna bend the rules and flat you know all these things and so people with that kind of philosophy keeping the total covid count low it is natural that they would want to not have school i mean so i see that and um and, and that's fine for them to have that perspective but of course there are trade-offs and and they talk about the trade-offs as if it's um, health versus education. But what I think that misses is that it's health versus health because education is a prerequisite for health. And, and, and I guess my philosophy here is I just want to be able to break something so that we can actually start talking about this um, more balanced. And so, so that's I just a prelude. But one thing I did before I entered this dis discussion is I wanted to spend some time just to understand the lay of the land. I read so much about schools being closed. Um, and then I started to do some surveying and some reading. And then somebody sent me a tracker called a school closure tracker. And I found some things that were really surprising to me. I don't know if, if you'll if you'll agree with these. Uh, and then I'll give you a question. Um, I, the one thing I found that was surprising to me was that um, daycares, especially for profit daycares are really running full steam ahead. And to some degree, they have to, because if the parent's a nurse or a doctor, or, you know, what the hell you want, you know, so the parents got to put the kid somewhere uh, to go care for other people. Um, or the parent works in, you know, Target or works in the grocery store. I mean, there are people who do that and they need someplace to put the kid. Otherwise, they're unemployed as well. Um, 
So, so I noticed that, so private schools, schools that people pay for in private daycares, those are high rates of, of, of still going. And then I noticed, I saw this map of public schools and it blew me away. It was like the electoral college map. It was like all the red states were like 90% plus in person school and all the blue states were like all zoom. Um, and then we've of course seen the picture of those poor kids in a parking lot using the Taco Bell Wi-Fi to do the zoom thing. And, um, Anyway, I don't want to go on and on, but I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that if you take a young child and put him in front of Zoom, it's not the same as being in classroom. Okay, so I guess my question to you is, um, how, how do you think about the decisions being made? It is a decentralized decision. What are the things that worry you? What are the things you like? What are the thoughts that come to your mind when you take this look at the landscape of and ask yourself, like, what are we doing here? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and I guess, let me, I guess in the interest of transparency, let me, let me just tell you, I was one of the, in my community, one of the earliest proponents of closing schools in the in the spring. I see. And I really kind of beat up the school board saying, what are you guys doing? Because at the time, right, we had shortages of PPE, we had this risk of emergency rooms overflowing and, and, and uh, bed space overflowing. So I think we have to remember that was the original motivation for closing schools, to buy us time to get ready. Right. I think the objective was never we have to close schools to keep people from getting sick. Yes, we knew that was not the objective. People get, yeah, yeah, people can get sick. Right. So yes. once we bought the time, once we got the PPE, once we got um, more capacity, then I think it's a different conversation. And it's a, the conversation you mentioned about trade-offs and risks. And so let me, I guess, let me approach it from three different ways um, that all speak to your question. Okay. And so this can be kind of a long answer. I apologize. But um, I think one is I want to acknowledge that reasonable people could disagree about risk, right? That I don't have, I'm not like the moral compass where I can say, here's where, you know, where here's where we should accept the extra case of COVID. But I think we have to acknowledge that like there's some, lo- should be some logic there. So for example, if you are a person that has a really low risk threshold or very high risk threshold, I think we should all agree that if bars are open, if yes. gyms are open, <laughs> right. then schools should be open, right? That you can't you can't believe it's too too risky for school to be open, but not for the other stuff. <laughs> so I think there's just a lot of irrationality in the priorities that we've made as a society, right? Yes. I think so people should say schools should be some of the last things to close. And yeah, it should be like hospitals, getting food, and schools. That's like one, yeah, two, three. Yeah. And at the bottom are strip clubs, bars. But strip clubs are open. I was reading some article about strip clubs being open. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to have some sense of, you know, NFL is on the bottom, schools is on the top. Let's agree. That, exactly. Any sensible person would say that. So, so I think I think that's our first indication yeah. that, that somehow our, our analysis of risk it, it got screwed up. Right? Yes. That we opened all the stuff. And we're not really that concerned about it, but we somehow schools are, are are different. So what makes school different? So I think the other thing we have to think about in terms of risk is you you mentioned the later life outcomes, and I think you're absolutely right. We know social determinants of health really important. Social determinants of health are determined by education in a large yes. part, right? Yes. Um, so, but I think we also have to think about the short-term risk, right? If schools are closed, well, what's the counterfactual? If parents are putting their kids into daycare, it's not obvious we've prevented COVID. We've just infected daycare workers who get paid a lot less and probably don't have paid sick leave versus teachers. Um, if p- kids are home with grandparents, now we're putting the grandparents at risk. Yes. Um, or if parents are having to take time off from work. So one of the things I read today, which was, I think, very concerning is COVID has had a big impact on female labor force participation because of access to childcare. Yes. Right? So there's going to be these gender effects um, that are going to be you know, really devastating for many families. So there's these immediate trade-offs that we're not really acknowledging that 
closing schools doesn't mean we're really preventing COVID. It could be that we're just putting other people at risk and we have to be think carefully about what's going on. Um, so, you know, I'm, in my community, our crime rates are at historic highs. We have huge gun violence problems and a significant number of that is, is teens. It's teen gun violence. And again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't think if schools open, that would go away, but I think not being at school puts kids at a bigger risk, especially if their kids are, if their parents are at work. Yes. I'm going on doing that. Yes. So I think that's, that's the other side of it. Yeah. So to your question, why are we making these decisions in a crazy way? And I think you've talked a lot about this on the podcast. I think politics, right? Yes. I think one of the worst things that Donald Trump did for getting schools reopened is come out and said, let's reopen schools. Exactly. If he, he turned uh, it into right. a political issue. Yeah. yeah. If he just yeah. kept his pie hole shut, yes. then we could have, you're I think, right. made these decisions much more rationally because than we I have. Because I think a lot of people just, I mean, their, their decision is whatever he says is the wrong thing, so he'll do the opposite. You're right. If the, I mean, when you talk about hydroxychloroquine, you're right. Every time he talks about something, people are going to have some draw to the opposite. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you're saying he politicized it. He should have kept quiet, which he should have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think this, you know, we've seen this happen with President Obama. President Obama came out in favor of Common Core, yeah. and suddenly America divided, right? Yes. All the Republicans thought Common Core was evil, and all the Democrats thought it was great. So I think I think it's, you know, just a symptom of, of you Where know, we are of, as a of country. our society. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, one of the, um, uh, uh, so, so you, I think you outlined, I mean, I think you outlined the first two reasons, right? Which is one, um, this is a irrational prioritization. Um, two, uh, is, is that it may not actually be doing what you think you're doing. There's unanticipated effects. The biggest unanticipated effect I would imagine is, I mean, if you're in a, a two person household with kids relying on school as a form of childcare, um, either that means your child is left alone. Who knows what the hell they're doing? It means you're dragging in grandma, grandpa to be a part of that, which is potentially an inoculum to the to the parent. Um, the third reason, I don't know if you said it clearly, maybe I missed the three. What's the third? Or I have a third. Uh, well, I think, yeah, I think the third was is the, you know, the, the politics. Oh, the politics. Um, yeah, the politicization yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. But, but, I think, but I think also think about the long-term risk, right? This is all yes. just, you know, the first two were just the immediate Short. harms now, but you know, what are the long-term effects for these kids and what's the incidence, right? What's the distributional consequences? Because not everybody is going to pay those costs equally. So, you know, I, I, we live in an urban district, um, but but there's a lot of inequality. And so there was a parent that reached out to us and said, hey, I want to start a pod. You know, let's all pull together and hire a teacher. Um, we can we can do that. Yes. Many of the other kids in my kids' schools can't do that, right? So when we're thinking about the long-term inequalities that are going to emerge um, and and the downstream consequences, I think it, it just kind of breaks my heart even thinking about it. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think it, it is wrong to even say the policy debate is school closure because school closure is not on the table. Rich people are going to be sending their kids someplace, whether you like it or not. A rich person would pay whatever it takes to get his or her kid into some place where they can do better for themselves. That's what's going to happen. And in fact, that's what is happening because I mean, I surveyed a lot of doctors. Every doctor I know, they're like, well, you know, it sucks that schools are closed, but it doesn't suck for me because all my kids are in private school. You know, that's what so many people told me. Um, and, and so that's one. It's not school closure. It's school closure for some kids. And those kids are public school kids in liberal states. It's not public school kids in conservative states because they're also saying to hell with it. Masks are bullshit and COVID's bullshit and the school keep it going. It's public school kids in liberal cities and liberal states. It's a strange policy decision we're making. That's the question. Do we join everyone else or do we, you know, do something different? Um, from a medical standpoint, one of the things that strikes me is the evidence that whether or not children, particularly those under the age of 16 or 18, what is the rate with which they're actually getting infected? 
What is the rate with which they spread it to each other? Um, there are some ongoing studies of genotyping where where there have been school reopenings and people have developed COVID. Um, one theory is, of course, the kids are spreading amongst themselves. The other theory is, of course, the teacher brought it in and spread it to others. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that might be more plausible, but we will know for sure when we do genotyping. So I guess just from a medical standpoint, I'm not entirely convinced that of all the ways in which contagion occurs from what we know about COVID, which is sort of most people don't spread it and a few people spread it a lot. I'm not necessarily convinced that the school is a big delta in the total sort of infection burden. Just from a medical standpoint, I think there's a lot more uncertainty there. And so what you have is a lot of certainty that keeping these kids out of school is going to do some damage and a lot of uncertainty about the safety. And I think that's part of it. The other part that I think is hard to put a finger on is the culture that we're in now. I mean, I think many of us lament where we were as, you know, when I grew up, my parents would say, go to the store and all these things. We're in a culture that's now where people are very guarding their children, even though it's one of the more safer times for children in America. Um, the, the idea of safetyism, that, you know, we're sort of obsessed about safety. We're obsessed about our child's safety. I've seen some polls say that some people say that they're not going to send their kids to school no matter what because they're scared about their kids' health. Um, the reality is that this virus for all all its horrible faults, thank God it doesn't kill kids in higher numbers. It has a very low, it's almost taboo to even say it, but it has a very low infection fatality rate in children. Um, it's not going to kill the kids. Um, in fact, I, 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 there are people who have done it and they have been criticized for doing it, but there's a certain risk from putting a kid in a car seat and driving. And that risk might be greater from driving than it is from the infection itself uh, on, on, a, on sort of a broad level. I say these things just to kind of put it in perspective that um, that um, the safety side of the equation is also not as certain. You alluded to that because there are these countervailing things people might do, like putting a kid with grandma. But it's also the simple fact that we don't really know how much of the virus is driven by young children put together. And there have been some studies suggesting that very little of the spread has occurred that way. Um, but I wonder if we might go to the sort of the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is... Um, I mean, you're you're a political scientist. You're you're somebody who um, thinks about these things. Um, I guess I kind of want to ask you, um, how do you think about these things? Like when you sit down and thinking about policy and politics, like how do you decide what you ought to weigh, whose input you ought to take in? How do you think about things broadly like that? You know, how, what is your philosophy of it? Yeah, so it's a good question. So, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm an empirical political scientist, so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how should the world be. I, I spend more time thinking about how is the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I think this is related to, to your point. Um, the risks for kids, I think we know, are certainly pretty low. There's debate about how much they can spread to family members. I mean, I think we, you know, we had, so I think some, some, High-profile examples like like uh, summer camps in Georgia, but we also have many countries that have open schools. Yeah, nothing minimal. happened, right? Yeah. yeah. But the flip side of that is um, we have a really we have an aging teacher workforce. Yes. Okay. Um, and we have a lot of teachers who are older and high risk, and so I think this I think COVID really illustrates um, what is what is you know an issue that I've been spent you know years thinking about and arguing about and trying to make people care about, which is um, you know we have to be careful that that we don't prioritize adult interests over kid interests. Um, and I think one of the challenges as a political scientist, um, you know, we believe voting works. We think, you know, we believe something called the median voter theorem that elected officials want to get reelected and that causes them to be good representatives. I think that works in general. Um, I get we can debate how well that works in general. But I think education is a unique context because kids don't vote. Yeah. Kids don't vote, right? So the incentives are totally misaligned um, when we think about what is it, 
you know, how we make policy if the interests of the kids really are not getting their full weight and the interests of adults really kind of dominate. Um, and so some of, some of our work really is trying to quantify this. Uh, and one of the, you know, one of the things that, that I found pretty striking is um, we have access to really good data on voters. And it turns out that voters who vote in school board elections, who elect these people, who make decisions like where well, school reopen or not, they look nothing like the kids. Most mm. of them don't have kids. First really? Of all. I, that's uh, fascinating. And, and they look nothing like the kids. So if you look at the average district that is a majority minority district, yes. the electorate is overwhelmingly white. Um, and so there's, you know, I think that's, as a political scientist, that's the challenge, right? We want policy that takes the risks into account, but also thinks about the trade offs and thinks about what's good for the kids. But we haven't set up a system to do that. Because our political system does not incentivize that because, again, that's, kids don't vote. That's such an important point. And it's it's really such a terrific point, particularly in this context. Um, you know, one of the things I always point out is, you know, we're paying for these costly cancer drugs. We're dropping $250,000 of Medicare money, taxpayer money, to maybe give somebody a drug that adds a week of life and sometimes maybe zero days of life, you know. Um, but one of the reasons why the powers reinforce that is that those people who may potentially be eligible for the drug, they're voting. They're perhaps even the driving elections. Meanwhile, you take that much money. I mean, the amount of money we're spending on useless cancer drugs and you put it in education, the number of life years you're going to add back to society, the productivity, the transformation you'll do in outcomes, leaving injustice and poverty and suffering and racial um, problems. You know, so I think it's it's easy to talk about medicine and how much GDP we're swallowing. I always like to remind, and the people say, you know, like, well, what else would you use it for? I always remind remind people that there are all these other things that society does how we educate and clothe and feed the youngest among us and those pay dividends for society and many of us particularly those of us i think who are left-leaning thinkers we think that we ought to spend more there the irony of this whole situation is it's some of the the leftist leaning thinkers the ones most i think um uh, with their finger on the pulse of racial injustice who are engaging unbeknownst to themselves in policies that are promoting racial injustice. I wonder if you might talk about that for a minute. You said you shared with me a very interesting article that that pointed out um, to, to sort of what you're saying, that um, the school districts that are opening are places where parents are pushing to open, and the school districts that are closing are places where parents aren't pushing as much, and that there is racial and economic injustice in those choices. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, just to give you some context, I think you make a, just a fantastic point about thinking, what, what's the cost of society? So there's um, an economist named Eric Hanischek at Stanford. Uh, and so he's recently estimated if we just add up the learning losses up until now, just from the spring up until yes. now. So his, you know, his, his estimate is in present dollars. That's $14.2 trillion in education in for the economy. Wow. Okay. Yes. From just from the learning losses alone, $14.2 trillion. So the impact, I think you're absolutely right. The impact, the long-term impact is, is huge. So to your point, we are seeing big differences. Uh, so uh, there's, there's a survey, the Associated Press and, and some other groups did a surveys of school district reopenings. Uh, and one of the striking things was that, um, Districts where the majority of students are white are three times more likely to be open for at least some in-person learning than school districts where most of the students are students of color. And so I think part of that, again, you know, reflects uh, differences in COVID prevalence rates and, and the risks of reopening schools. But part of it does reflect uh, these power imbalances, right? Here here in Columbus, we had a suburb where uh, parents just packed the school board meetings and were demanding in-person mm, learning. Right. Um, 
Whereas I think, you know, in, in, in uh, more disadvantaged districts, uh, parents are busy, they're working, they might not know when the school meetings are, and right. I mean, they might not have the resources to do that. And so I think you don't get the same kind of advocacy on the, on the behalf of students. Um, and there's also districts where you get, I think, I think in general, stronger advocacy on, on behalf of school employees who quite naturally, you know, uh, care about themselves. So, you know, I, I'm teaching a class now. I can tell you it was pretty anxious a uh, couple of weeks getting ready for that. So I totally understand where teachers are coming from. Uh, but again, I think this is a case where we have to balance those risks and we have to make sure that we're doing what's good, not just for the teachers, but for the kids and making trade-offs on that margin where necessary. I think that that's the key, that as you allude to, that there will be trade-offs in all these dimensions. You know, there are things we can do to mitigate the trade-offs. For instance, if a, te- if a if somebody is 60 years old, yeah, they don't have to work. 50-year-old teachers, maybe they don't have to work. We can pass the baton a little bit to some of the younger teachers who can do more of the in-person education. People who, you know, I hear a lot about um, people talk about um, people who are immunocompromised or comorbidities, you know, we know that some of those things are actually pertinent to COVID, but perhaps some of the more traditional ways in which people are immunocompromised do not appear to be incredibly pertinent. But whatever it is, we can think of people who are at higher risk of COVID death and COVID hospitalization and give them a pass, give them a freebie. But for the rest of us, we can still kind of do the best um, to mitigate um, and and to continue to have school because of the tremendous importance it provides to children. Uh, one thing that I think is along these lines um, that I wanted to make this point is that some places that are attempting to do this, they keep a tally of the number of new cases. And as that clock goes up, there's a certain point they say, oh shit, there's too many new cases. We've got to close it. To me, that's the wrong um, futility. Ba- that's the wrong stopping boundary. Um, you shouldn't just look at cases because it matters to whom the cases are occurring in. Um, you should look at hospitalizations. If the hospitalization gets to maybe a much lower number, but hospitalization, like these people are sick, then stop. But cases themselves, you know, if a child is getting a case and it's asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, they feel better in a few days. We know household transmission rates might be as low as one in three, maybe even lower if it's children. We don't, you know, these numbers are still in flux. Um, Maybe that's not the end of the world, you know, and, you know, maybe it's okay to have a few more cases because those aren't the bad cases. We got to protect the bad cases. You're nodding. But I guess that's that's more of the medical sort of side of things. But it's 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 something that I see that frustrates me is people say, we tried. There are too many cases. I said, get the damn swab out of the kid's nose and there won't be so many cases. The kid's fine, you know. That's, that's a very Trumpian perspective, right? We're testing too much. But yeah, I think I, mean, I think you I think you I think you're right. And I think you identify what um, you know, what's so difficult. I think people have look at COVID case counts as like the policy objective to minimizing yes. that. But that's not the policy objective. The policy objective is like minimizing harm. Yes, um, that's right. And and not all cases are created equal. Uh, so I think you're exactly right that, you know, there is there is a little bit of a, you know, perception problem, right? It's scary. It's scary when the cases start going up and, I think we get distracted from really making these rational decisions carefully. Yeah, and, and and about the Trump point, I mean, Trump is a broken watch. You know, twice a day he's right, <laughs> but that's the problem with Trump is that, you know, um, just because he says it doesn't mean he's wrong. But I mean, yes, of course, when he, the CDC put out that stupid thing that said, you know, we shouldn't be testing for asymptomatic people, that's not the right answer because potentially we could advise them to stay in and, and it might make some difference on the margin. But, you know, um, whether and how aggressively to test people who are at ultra low risk when you reinstate some of these programs that have alternative benefits there i think there can be some room for debate even if the broken watch happened to be happened to say it um i want to be very careful how i put this i'm reading a lot of books about europe recently in the 1920s and europe in the 1920s was in a rough place they had just come out of world war one and there were a number of places in which people didn't feel the bounce back the economic bounce back um they felt that there was a growing divide between the rich and the poor. They felt that if you were poor, you didn't have upward mobility. Um, it was a tumultuous time. And one of the points that many of these historians make in these books is that the conditions are ripe for 
two sorts of things. One, there can be a charismatic person with a progressive vision that takes that energy and tries to use it for good, creating social security, creating Medicare, trying to do something that empowers us all and that 60 years later, it's unthinkable on either political party to take it away. It can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil by despots, by by, by tyrants, by people who point the finger at others who don't look like us, who don't speak like us, um, who harness xenophobia, who use it to foment bad things. And I guess what really worries me about all the things, in addition to the things you've talked about, is this ineffable thing, which is you take people out of school, you start to put people at home, you make people quit their jobs, you put these people in a pressure cooker financially and mentally because people want to work, they want to be productive members of society. Um, you do these things and you sow the seeds for somebody, not like Trump, somebody who's actually smart, who's actually charismatic, you know, who, who has some of the things that give him a flavor of charisma. I mean, I don't want to say that he's got nothing that's interesting. I mean, sometimes you, you watch him the way you watch a car accident. Um, you know, he's captivating in a way. Um, but there's, there's somebody along there who's got really bad ideas and they hold it together better and they're more consistent. They don't say stupid things. And that person so easily could take his, his followers and a few more and pick up a few more and take control. I mean, so that's something that I wonder if you might speak to as a political scientist is this, am I crazy? Is the stage set for these sorts of things? Gosh, you know, if you had asked me four years ago, I would have said, you're totally crazy. Right. But, you know, I think I think what we've seen happen in the world, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting a little scary. Um, so, you know, I think you're, you're right to be worried about those things. I don't know how much kind of school closures contribute. You know, mm -hmm. I think that we have so many other right. issues in our society. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think one thing that's relevant is... Um, you know, education, public education has a huge role in as a process of political socialization, right? Mm, it's teaching sure. us citizenship skills, teaching us critical thinking. And so I, you, I think you're worried about the, the kind of shorter to medium term. I think we should also be thinking about, you know, what happens to these kids when they grow up, right? I see. I mean, especially all, you know, homeschooling could be great on many dimensions, but it may not be great in exposing you to other people with different ideas um, and really building this political community. And so I think if we look back to the 1800s, right, education was closely tied and public education was closely tied to this idea of we have to do this to strengthen our democracy, to make sure that our democracy can succeed. And so I think, you know, closed schools now will, will potentially, I think, make some of these dynamics worse as people That's are insulated, point. as their kids are insulated. That's a fascinating point. You know, sometimes I see policies that some people champion, like, I don't know, abstinence-only education, and I look at the data, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't, that clearly is expensive and takes time and absolutely doesn't change the thing you think it changes. In fact, you know, maybe it even backfires, right? And so I think to myself, the only person who would continue to champion this is someone who was never educated that, that, that the things don't always go the way you want, and when you do something and you keep swinging for the next and hitting your thumb instead, you got to stop swinging. And that's part of that is education. So I guess, I mean, one of the things it, it, to, to kind of echo what you're saying is it makes you worry, worried that education is also a way in which you can tell political bullshit from the truth, um, you know, have your own compass, make sense of claims that are told to you. Um, and, and the more you deprive some of that, you create a citizenship that may not have the tools to, to make better political choices for themselves, you know, things that actually do work and help their own interests. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, I think it's one thing to teach people facts and get them to memorize equations. And I think parents can do that. Online programs can do that. But that's only a small subset of the skills we want schools to develop, right? Mm. And I think it's those, uh, these, these critical thinking skills that you're talking about that where that in-person component and that in-person interaction is really most essential because you need that 
pushback. You need that interaction with other people, those debates, those arguments, the, you know, and, and um, I think that's, that's definitely, um, you know, I think that's an essential part of, of the education process, definitely, for democracy. And I think that's the part that's most we're, we're kind of giving up right now in our current educational system in, in, as we adapt to COVID. That's so well said. You know, I like you a lot because you also talk fast like me. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, I feel like we've covered so much ground uh, in such a short period of time. Uh, is, there, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is really pertinent um, I mean, you, I think you've hit so many, so many points so eloquently that I've struggled to kind of articulate, but are the things that I've kind of taken in. Um, I will be honest with you, you know, four weeks ago, um, I tweeted something like, um, I, I don't know the answer to school closure. I'm surprised how many people are so ardent about it. Um, and I said, but here are the questions I want to know. Like one, you know, wh what's the delta for the infection if you open versus not open? Two, what's the delta for outcomes if you open versus not open? And I, I made a list of like seven things for the kids' outcomes, teacher outcomes, society outcomes, infection outcomes, open, not open. And I started to investigate these things in my leisure time, reading all these preprints and boring articles. And the more I investigated, I was like, hmm, it's hard for me to see. I'm tipping that this is really important to schools. And the reasons you're giving for not doing it are kind of boogeymen. Um, they are scary, but there's not a lot of truth. Uh, there's not a lot of merit that those things might materialize. And then I started to see this sort of, as you point out, casinos are opening. Uh, you know, you can cash your chips in, but you can't, you know, learn to read. I mean, I started to see these kind of in, incongruities and I became kind of frustrated and I also felt like we couldn't even have a discussion on Twitter because every time I say anything you know they, they, they mob me um, so I'm wondering is there anything that I'm missing you know you've, you've outlined sort of the pillars uh, that you think are sort of key here but anything we didn't talk about yeah well so let me just yeah. let me just add two things um, so you were talking about reading about Europe in the early part of the 20th yes. century uh, so there was a great Washington Post article just a few weeks ago on outdoor schooling in the early 20th century uh, in response to tuberculosis, right? We had tuberculosis outbreaks. We had widespread tuberculosis, and we adapted and we figured out how to let schools continue, right? I mean, so in the spring, we were talking a lot about the flu epidemic of 1918 when the schools closed, but these, you know, we had tuberculosis for decades, yes. and we, we made it work. So I think we can learn a lot from that and, and realize that, you know, I think in many ways, tuberculosis is really, really scary, right? Just, I mean, at least as scary, if not as, as COVID. Certainly back then when there was no treatments. And yeah, yeah right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Die of the and so, you know, I think that's, I think for me, that's a reminder that, you know, hey, like life does not have to stop. We, we just have to, you know, work through it and figure out how to do it. And I think the, the, the point I want to, I guess I want to emphasize is, you know, I think it's great to have all these arguments about school clo closure. I think, you know, it's ultimately not going to change. So I, I think we should be thinking about, what do we do to make up for these losses sure. once we're back to normal? Uh, and I think it's going to require um, really um, expensive investments, but also really politically difficult expenses uh, investments. Because you know, I think there's you know, unless we're willing to write off an entire generation of disadvantaged kids, um, we're going to have to do something about it. And it's going to be mean extending the school day. It's going to mean extending the school year. Um, it's going to mean really high intensity tutoring. And I think it's going to mean all of those. Um, and not only is that expensive, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be difficult because, you know, teachers like teaching because they like the 180 day school year. And so even locally, when I suggested, Hey, when school reopens, why don't we just cancel the summer break? Yeah, I guess a lot of pushback, but those are the kinds of conversations we need to have now so that we are, you know, planning for how we're going to, we're going to, uh, kind of make up this lost ground. Because again, we can't, I, I think we can't, just say it is what it is. COVID was bad. Let's focus on on the kids and the next group of kids, right? Because this is just going to have such a long term impact unless we're able to reverse 
some of the challenges that we've, we've gone through. Um, and that's going to be really difficult. So I hope, I hope people are having that conversation and thinking about that and thinking about those trade-offs. That's a, that's an excellent point. I mean, I'm, I'm still hopeful, you know, it's, it's still September there. New York, I think is slated to go 20, you know, September 27th, they have, uh, you know, infection rates, you know, test positivity rates less than 1%. Um, they were pushed back by unions, by parents, by all these forces, the forces of, of fear. Um, but uh, the forces that don't like to say the word trade-off, but there were trade-offs, um, they've been pushed back. I think I, So I'm hopeful that we can still turn it around in the fall, that there'll be some places that open more, that people recognize that, you know, I like to keep reframing it as the choice isn't open or closed schools. A lot of schools are going to run no matter what. That's where that's where the doctors are sending their kids. And then these other schools, the question is, you, you want them to or you want to close those ones selectively? Because uh, that's the real choice. Um, so I'm hoping we can fix it. But your point is so good. Fix it. Don't fix it. Maybe it's a good opportunity to do these longstanding reforms. I don't know many kids these days who do summer agricultural activities and need those three, you know, they need those three months off. They need to go to year round school. They need to have a, a school day should be work days. This is a foolishness. I don't know why this persists. The school day. The, the, the adult work day should be within the school day so they can drop off, then go to work, and then come pick up. That's how any sensible world would work. And and the nutrition, you know, we didn't talk too much about, but I've, I've been reading a lot about sort of European standards for nutrition. They serve them real food, man. They serve them good stuff. <laughs> I want to go eat there. Um, you know, and, and these are, you know, kids who those, those, th- those decisions and how they teach them to eat in some countries, it's not just the food they eat. They teach them how to think about meals and plan meals and eat healthy um, as part of a, a healthy and rich life. Um, you know, that helps them be healthy as adults, I would imagine. And and is certainly a worthwhile investment just, you know, for the way you'd want to treat children. Um, so I think it is an opportunity. And I think you're right that it's going to take money, which um, there's a lot of in healthcare, 20% of GDP, we're, we're sucking down, uh, but we're not delivering what we ought to be delivering for those results. And if we give you guys in education 5% of GDP, you could transform this nation. Um, and, and we could easily cut it and not cut a single thing that actually helps anyone. That's so, you know, so I do think that that's something that we have to discuss openly as a policy. Now, this is, this is stellar. Uh, what else are you thinking? You have a few thoughts left. Ah, boy. Uh, I think, I think we've covered, um, you know, I think we've covered everything. You know, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, I guess I can, let's speculate on the future. I think best case scenario is kind of what you described. We have New York reopen and we're looking, you know, we look at some of the Southern states and we see, Hey, it's not so bad. And then there's political pressure on everybody else to reopen. So I think that's the best case scenario. I think worst case scenario is kind of the opposite that, you know, in the South, we have these states reopen without really good plans, without yeah. necessarily having the right equipment in place and we get massive outbreaks and that just delays reopening for everybody else. I see. And at this point, I'm not sure which of, which of those two is more probable. I'm, I'm, I think I'm more on the pessimistic side mm-hmm. because I think we do have a lot of adult interests who really don't want schools to reopen. So they're just looking for every kind of every failure to bring it to their local school board and say, here, see what happens when you try to reopen to try to, you know, fight back. So I, I, my worry is that we're going to, we're going to be doing remote learning, not just for all the fall, but really for the remainder of the year and oh, really until we get widespread that vaccine. Um, and I that. think that would be just, just incredibly devastating for again, the most disadvantaged families and the most disadvantaged kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a lot to take in. I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, I share, we, we share all the same views here. Oh gosh, I hope it doesn't come to that. Um, you know, I think the adult interest is so torn, you know, they're the interests of the teachers. And of course, you know, I know what their, or at least many of their interests are. They're the interests of the parents who say, 
get these kids to school, at least the, at least a lot of them, but some of them I think also are fearful of their own kids' safety, which I think is sort of uh, an uh, objectively not an, a fair assessment of the risk to the child. Um, gosh, you know, it's, 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 it's a volatile time. Yeah, who knows where we'll be. It'll be one way or the other. I have a sneaking suspicion that if the election goes to Biden, the discussion will be different than if the election goes to Trump. If the election goes to Trump, it's going to be an uphill slog to get schools open because he wants the schools open. If the election goes to Biden, and we know that Biden is coming, I think a lot of people who are left-leaning will start to see the wisdom of having schools. Um, so I don't know if you if you think there's something to that. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's a great point. Uh, so I think there is a really important piece here um, that we haven't talked about, but which is um, testing. Uh, so I think one of the most incredible things that's happened in public education in the last 20 years is we actually have data and we can document achievement gaps yes. and that just has had you know that's had some perverse incentives in terms of teaching to the test but has also um, mobilized people and it it laid bare some of these inequities and i think one of the things that's at stake in this election is is are we going to have testing this year are we going to have testing going forward uh, and so i think if, if biden wins i think there's going to be a lot of pressure not to have tests mm. um and, and I worry that in the long term, not getting that data, not being able to document the impact that, that COVID closures have had uh, and, the, and the inequitable impacts that they've had, I think is going to is going to be a problem. So, I, you know, regardless of what happens in the election, I think uh, we need we need good measures and we need good data to see, you know, to, to you know, to identify the impacts and, and to identify where our interventions are needed because there's going to be differences across communities, there's going to be differences across schools, there's going to be differences across kids. And so having data is incredibly important. And I think that's one of the, one of the fault lines, unfortunately, politically um, right now. That's a fascinating point. Yeah, you're right. And um, along those lines, I think that if the, if the board that says the number of cases in America, that thing that's on, you know, on every uh, newspaper front and center, if there was also a board of number of missed days of school that just kept running up every single day, a kid is out of school, um, it, would, it, it would help people think about the, the trade-offs that we're actively making. But uh, Dr. Kogan, this was a real pleasure. Love to have you back in the future when we can find something at the intersection of education and health. Uh, I feel like I learned a ton. And I think what you study is super important, um, probably one of the most important things we have. And I hope that people will heed your advice and whether or not whatever choices we make in the short term, I hope we commit to making the long term choices to to do the best we can to either catch up or to do even better than we otherwise might would. You know, let's take this crisis as an opportunity to, to do the reforms that are long overdue. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. I'm back here in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Dan Morgan. Dan Morgan is friend of the show, although maybe he won't admit that publicly. Dan Morgan is professor of medicine at the University of Maryland. He is a practicing infectious disease doctor. He is an infectious disease steward at the hospital. He does work on low-value care, evidence-based medicine, and uh, doing some tremendously interesting stuff with a really great paper on how we conceptualize benefits and risks recently out in JAMA and a great podcast that came out with uh, with Howard Boschner. Um, and we're here to talk about something different. We're here to talk about statements and misrepresentation. So, Dan, it's a pleasure to have you back. Great. Uh, it's great to be here, Vinay. It's great to watch the end of your career right here on Plenary Session. <laughs> 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 yes, as, as I defend uh, the the Trump approach to COVID, the Trump approach. 
Donald J. Trump's approach to COVID. Well, you know, Dan Morgan, I think you've been on this podcast before. You put all your cards down on the table and basically you made the argument that, you know, you, like me, are a progressive left of center kind of person and you are also an infectious disease expert and you more than anyone understand the seriousness of SARS-CoV-2. You are a practicing doctor. Uh, At the same time, you also, as a progressive, understand the seriousness of responses to SARS-CoV-2. And so you realize that there are trade-offs that have to be made. And nobody knows the perfect answer to these trade-offs. If we did, we would be sort of superhuman. Um, So we're all kind of making our best guess about these trade-offs with the, you know, evidence that we have at the time. Um, But we're here to talk about, I think, that there are, you know, more and more polar extremes for these trade-offs. Um, one polar extreme, I think, is the Twitter extreme, which tends to lean towards, uh, I mean, I think some people are calling it like the Zoomocracy, where it's, you know, people who predominantly have professions that they can work and live off Zoom. Um, and so they feel strong pressure to keep things shut down for as long as possible, minimize transmission, um, keep schools shut down for as long as possible. Um, and I think the other aspect of this is many people who are socioeconomically well off are put their kids in private school. I've been doing some informal surveys. I find that many of my colleagues have done that. Um, anyway, we're here to talk about something particular, Dr. Scott Atlas. Dr. Atlas, of course, was the former chairman of radiology at uh, Stanford University, and he is now Trump's guy. And um, maybe to some degree that doesn't help his uh, image and reputation to be Trump's guy. Um, But he has recently um, been the recipient of a strong rebuke from his colleagues at Stanford. Um, They say that he has put forth, quote, falsehoods and misrepresentations of science. And I guess um, I applaud people at Stanford for being critical of the policy of Dr. Scott Atlas. I think that's that's a healthy debate. Um, but I think the question is, you know, is he guilty of falsehoods and misrepresentations? So are you ready to take a hard look at these statements by Dr. Atlas? Um, reluctantly, I, I am willing. Um, I mean, I should start out saying too yes. that I think that um, you know we we are in a tricky time. I think there's a lack of leadership and the authoritarian tendencies by the president kind of ruins necessary trust to do a lot of things that are difficult but should be done, like opening schools and you know opening the the country in other ways. So I, I do think there's a, a lack of leadership that has steered things in the wrong direction and you know ultimately the president is the most responsible person for that. But that being said, I don't think it means that because the president has done something wrong, we have to be dumb in response and that is the part that kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't think there're many people who are going to look at the legacy of this administration and say, well, those are a lot of policy successes. They're going to point out that there are a lot of incredible blunders. And they're also going to see somebody who on many occasions used divisive rhetoric and further fueled tensions and escalated things. And and that, to some degree, is not what many people look for in the highest office. And when you do that so often and you create so much bad blood among so many people, when things really do get crazy... You know, I guess one shouldn't be surprised that there's not going to be a lot of trust and goodwill um, that's extended your way at the outset. So I guess I'm not surprised people are responding. But at the same time, when we're making these policy decisions where there is no perfect answer, where there are trade-offs, I think we can't let our opposition of even a very bad politician 
get in the way of trying to do what's the most sensible approach that balances the the risks and benefits, the trade-offs, if you will. Yeah. Although I shouldn't say risks and benefits. It's different here. I think it's 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 known downstream harms at different temporal locations um, with a lot of uncertainty around those harms and some uncertainty around even the benefits. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's key. And, um, you know, when, when you mentioned, uh, you know, needing to, to try to think about what is the most appropriate approach uh, in spite of the president, um, that really resonates. And I think, you know, it, it was clear when, you know, say people were debating how to open schools and if schools should be opened and in which way. And then the president weighed in and said, all schools have to be open. Mm. He drove a lot of rational people to just become completely opposed to schools in a way that um, was discouraging as far as the uh, kind of critical thinking um, on the part of academics, um, you know, and, and colleagues, et cetera. Yeah, I felt the same way. I mean, if it was a really hot day and you were thinking about going out wearing shorts and then Donald Trump went on TV and said, it's really hot, everyone should wear shorts today, I think a lot of people are going to wear pants and go out there. But, you know, that's, I mean, I think that's one of the challenges. But, you know, hopefully you can say, well, you know, even though this guy told me to wear shorts and even though this guy has done a lot of things that i'm not happy with if i want to wear shorts i'm going to wear shorts and if i want to wear pants i'll wear pants so let's jump in let's jump in that's silly analogy but let's jump in to scott atlas all right scott atlas you know i'm he he was somebody who I, I don't think people thought of as, as being linked to Trump, but he has stepped up and he's joined and he's become linked for better or worse. Um, so here's what um, this is what the letter says. It says that he has said a lot of things that are um, falsehoods and misrepresentations of science. And I think it is possible that somebody says falsehoods and misrepresentations of science. A classic example would be that the MMR vaccine is linked to to autism. That's a falsehood and misrepresentation of science and a very dangerous idea to put forward. So we all agree there is such a thing um, because, in fact, in well-done studies, it's not been linked. And in the thing that people think has linked it, that's a piece of garbage. That Wakefield paper, I don't know why they ever published it. It was never good to begin with. It was always garbage. Um, I mean, it's not even good science. It was just a it was just a total joke. I, I actually read it a few years ago and I was shocked at how bad it was. Um, I thought it would at least have the illusion of science. It didn't even have that. Um, anyway, so let's go through his statements. So the, the Stanford re professors responding to him, right? The use of face masks, social distancing, hand washing, and hygiene have been shown to substantially reduce the spread of COVID-19. Crowded indoor spaces are settings that significantly increase the risk of spread. Um, I, think, I think most people would agree with that. Um, relevant examples, statements by Dr. Atlas. Much of the stuff on masks is not really good science at all. I'm not going to say this because very few people even talk about it. This idea that masks being necessary, particularly for children, is completely irrational. So let's just, I mean, why don't we just jump on those two? Much of the stuff's on masks is not really good science at all. What do you think about that, Dr. Morgan? Hey, well, I mean, you, you know this quite well. I think you had a podcast a few months ago right. talking about masks. And it, it is one of these things where I think if people remember, um, you know, the data that we had back in March when this all started and the fact that none of us wore masks, um, you know, around uh, outside of the hospital, outside of seeing patients who were on certain precautions. Um, and that was based on the best science from CDC and elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I think we agreed that there was just not a lot of um, strong science supporting masks. And, uh, you know, Oxford Evidence-Based Medicine Group, a highly respected group of epidemiologists, 
you know, have pointed this out too, that um, there are a lot of low level studies that tend to suggest there may be some benefits. And then there's actual cluster randomized trials with flu and influenza like illness that don't find a benefit or find some confusing findings that uh, maybe cloth mask or worse. Um, and I mean, it really argues that we don't have high level science, but, you know, I think as you pointed out and others that, um, you know, it's like a foreign policy decision. It's, yes. it's probably a, a very reasonable approach to use masks because the harms are um, are pretty minimal. But the benefits, you know, I agree, are, are not really proven. And, you know, I, I think that um, it's it's he's uh, ex, uh, going a little bit beyond, I think, what most people would say. But I do think that, um, you know, Dr. Fauci and others back in March were saying masks aren't aren't useful and it's not like there's new data yeah, since then it's that's the scientific you know uh perspective yeah. has swung and yeah. you know you hear tony Fauci back backtracking on this yeah with all sorts of stories like yeah marginal effect <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i think i'd hate to say it but i mean you might not want to put it that way i mean you might want to say that you know when there, there's uncertainty we err on the side of precautionary principle you might want to say that but you know i don't think you can t i mean technically he's not inaccurate uh, much of it is not really good science i mean it is what it is i mean uh, we can i i mean i think he has a he has a leg to stand on there um and then the next part that that the idea of masks particularly for children is completely irrational uh, i guess i would jump in and just say um you know, that's a really tough, I mean, I think he's not off, totally off the mark that I think when, I mean, there are, I'm not aware of any good studies in four-year-olds, three-year-olds, when you actually get them to wear the mask. Again, you know, they're the, theore the theory that if they sneeze, it's going to be caught. But when you actually take a three-year-old and put a mask on them, what will they actually do? They, it might be ending up, they might chew it, and the next thing their buddy might chew it too. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, what do you think there? It, the data on young children wearing masks. So, I mean, uh... You know, I think anyone who spends time around kids uh, can imagine like three-year-olds or four-year-olds and, and how they wear masks and, uh, you know, what they tend to do with their mouths and their hands, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and really question if masks are beneficial in that setting. Um, I think there's just no data. And, uh, you know, when, when our state decided to mandate it for daycares, it made me question also if... Uh, you know, if this was a good or even a possible thing to do, you know, I think uh, it's it's not unreasonable to try, but I think it's quite reasonable to say we don't know. Yeah, I mean, at a certain age, putting a mask on a child is like asking a dog to wear pants. It's not going to stay where you think it's going to go. Um, let's see, some of the other things he said that were wrong, they put in this category. You know, there's no real good science on general population widespread in all circumstances wearing masks. I think that's defensible. The reality is that there's certain data that's very controversial about masks, defensible. It's not logical that otherwise healthy adults, especially younger age groups, should be isolated and maintain a six-foot spacing from each other. Um, I guess I, uh, that's a little different one. Um, the distance one, I mean, I think it's theoretically logical. Um, I would see requiring restaurants to put a guideline on the door that says if you're over 65 and you're diabetic, there may be a risk in being a small space, but that's very different from saying to a restaurant that they must have six foot spacing. A restaurant must have a mask. I think that's a very important topic. The science behind the six foot spacing is embarrassingly weak. I think he probably, if push comes to shove, probably that is defensible that the exact, in fact, I think there are, there is that BMJ article by, uh, by Trish Greenhall, who is a mask advocate of the, you know, the most prominent mask advocate, and even she is sort of critical of the exact six-foot distance. I think, you know, I think he has a leg to stand on, on all those statements. Um, 
you know, although I think there is sort of an intuitive logic to keep your distance from people and, you know, I, and again, I guess it's not, it's not to say that um, I actually do agree with keeping distance and hand washing and social hygiene and masks. Um, I agree with all those things, but I think can you really fault him for taking the other sort of negative spin of the study, looking at the same data? I don't, I think that's not really faultable. Let's go to statement two. Transmission yeah, of SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, go and ahead. Maybe I just throw in, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I use masks and social distancing, et cetera. But I, I do think that, um, that, that it's not a, a terribly science driven approach. And I, I do think that's one place where, uh, the, the debate gets hung up that people say, well, it's, it's completely scientific that you're supposed to do this. And I think that, you know, for aerosol versus droplet and three feet versus six feet versus airborne and any amount of feet is dangerous. All, all gets to that uncertainty that we don't have great data or great understanding. And so, I mean, I think that he may be skewing it in a direction that, you know, supports his, his approach, but it's, uh, it's not that it's, um, you know, false claims either. Yeah, that's the key. I think he's spinning it in a way that serves what his policy recommendation is. But, you know, that's the way academics works. I mean, people spin their stuff in the way they want to take it, you know, and but it's not, I don't think, technically on the face of it, a false claim. Let's go. Statement two. Transmission of SARS-CoV-2 frequently occurs. This is what the Stanford, you know, opponents think, the, the 100 faculty. And again, I also think that the 100 faculty are right in their statement that, that these things have been shown to, sub, well, I guess I would say that these things have a plausible reason to believe they would substantively reduce the spread of COVID-2 instead of have been shown. They may overstate it a little bit too, the other way. Let's go statement two. Transmission of SARS-CoV-2 frequently occurs from asymptomatic people, including children and young adults, to family members and others. Therefore, testing asymptomatic individuals, especially those with probable COVID-19 exposure is important to break the chain of ongoing transmission. Relevant statements from Dr. Atlas. The data shows it is rare or very rare to transmit the disease if you are asymptomatic. It is not common. In fact, it is rare to get an infection transmitted from an asymptomatic person. When you start introducing closure of schools because people have test positive, um, that's sort of not the purpose of testing. Okay, so here, um, what do you think? I mean, here I think... There's a debate here. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, certainly asymptomatic people do spread the virus. We do know that. That's true. Um, but he's saying it's rare. Um, and he's also saying that, you know, if you're if you're using the number of cases to close a school, um, that's not the purpose of testing. What do you think, Dr. Morgan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a, a few different issues. And it's kind of funny they put the quote about schools in with this because I think it's it's a little separate. But yes. I mean, we, we know that uh, if you actually look at the data on uh, people being able to have co live virus cultured from them, the, the highest transmission periods are like the first few days before symptoms and the first few days after symptoms. And uh, it's there's much less data on asymptomatic people. It's really not that clearly known you know, how many are asymptomatic or how transmissible they are. And we know that probably the biggest risk are like these super spreader events, which we don't know much about them, but like say a Zumba class in South Korea or, you know, a choir in uh, Washington state have spread in a big way. And that's probably related to very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic people, um, you know, uh, engaging in singing or other activities. Um, right. We do know that people who are asymptomatic, at least in contact tracing, tend to spread it much less frequently. Like in a study from China, about 3% of patients who were um, asymptomatic spread it to others, whereas 13% with symptoms spread it, which you know is not surprising. You're coughing, you're sneezing, you have symptoms, you probably are more prone to uh, spreading a virus that's in the respiratory tract. 
Um, and I do think that that has become uh, almost a touchstone that uh, uh, some people who advocate, you know, sort of closure, uh, shutdown at all all levels tend to, to argue that asymptomatic is equally important or more important. And I think it's just not that obvious. And the, the data is hard to follow because we don't have like complete tracking of where people got it. And in the United States, certainly, you know, I mean, we are not in a situation where contact tracing has much of a role because we have way too many cases, I think, to to ever have a benefit from contact tracing until we actually like get the levels down to much lower levels, which is hard to imagine that happening without herd immunity. And I think that that is well put. And and I think that's what makes this a thorny issue, because on the face of it, I think that Dr. Atlas he has a different point of view entirely than the Stanford uh, critics of Dr. Atlas. Um, but I think you know, I, I don't think I see anything that on the face of it is 100% inaccurate that is really clearly at the level of falsehood and misrepresentation. I think part of the challenge is that these these things are intertwined a little bit, which is I think Dr. Atlas is okay with people of low risk contracting the virus and developing some immunity levels in the population through that mechanism. The people who criticize him, they are do not like that as a strategy in any way, shape, or form. I don't want to call it the herd immunity strategy because it's not necessarily herd immunity that Dr. Atlas is supporting, but uh, they would say that every additional case is a problem. And it, and if you believe that, then, you know, it would be logical to test everybody and, and isolate. But I think there's a practical matter here, which is that even if we wanted to do it, could we do it? And when you're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who actively have the infection at a moment in time and who are touching and meeting with people you know, in an exponential manner, the number of contacts we have, I mean, it, it, contact tracing is may not be possible, period, end of story. Like, even if you invested a lot more money, you wouldn't be able to rev it up to where you need it to be with, with such a high fraction, of, with the virus being so endemic. Um, I think it's a, that's the debate to have, which is, are we going to get juice from that squeeze if we were to really rev it up? I think your point of view is the point of view that I fall at, which is that it'd have to be a lot lower for it to even be feasible. Um, but I think the people who write the Stanford rebuttal, they don't feel that way. They think it is doable. The virus can be driven to extinction if we were to do it. Dr. Atlas disagrees. I think that's why the statements are a little bit different. Let's talk about the schools one. You know, I think, again, it really has to do with what your policy solution is. Dr. Atlas might be willing to open a school and let infections start rolling, um, and the stopping rules for the school might be hospitalization. So when you get to you know X number of people, staff or 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 students hospitalized, then you would halt it. Um, that might be a strategy for colleges as well. If you get X number of people hospitalized, that might be what Dr. Atlas is proposing as the stopping rule. Um, but other people and have been using, I think raw cases, the number of infections as the stopping rule. Um, and I think Dr. Atlas's comment that um, introducing closure of school because people have positive asymptomatic tests, that's sort of not the purpose of testing. I think that's the that's a bigger debate. And it is a debate that people could reasonably have without one side at the outset knowing the other side is really wrong. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, that that was one of the ones I thought was a, a very interesting quote, because I think the purpose is really all subjective. But if you look at all this data across like many colleges that are testing people, um, it seems crazy that they opened and planned to, to close if there were positive cases, because it's yes, almost guaranteed, right, yeah. you would think, that you yes, take people right. from different <laughs> yeah. areas and you put them together and they're, you know, young people who are bored and tired from the, the lockdown already. And, uh, and then you say you test them all the time, and if they're positives, 
then they did something wrong and we're going to shut down. And, you know, I really haven't heard anything in the, the range of like how many people are actually sick. And you would think, if anything, this group of patients, it's, you know, people from like 18 to 23 or something would be incredibly low risk. Yes. So I think I, I've heard a couple of things. The Alabama experience was everyone had to have a baseline test within two weeks of starting. But that's almost useless because you get test negative and you got two weeks to go have fun before going to college and you can get the virus. The other example, and, and then once you go, you only test if you're symptomatic. And then they had a bunch of quarantines, but it's finally, I think, cooled down a little bit. Um, one of the other schools that, um, I forget which one, it, they had sort of a bi-weekly testing strategy. Now that's getting to the level where, you know, maybe you're going to be able to find stuff early and interdict before cases. But I think there is a policy question here, which is, would it really be so bad if there are a bunch of cases? There is a certain complication rate, hospitalization rate, but in that age group, it's really, really low. I mean, there's also a risk by going back to college that they're going to be drinking related deaths. You know, that's a risk of college, you know, going to college, there is some risk of death. Um, as there is with, you know, driving anywhere, you know, there's a risk of death with all these things. The question, of course, is what risks of death are unacceptable and what risks of death tip trade-offs? Um, I guess it's an open question. And and I think it it is different in different age groups. And so, but the, but the point remains, um, if your policy is at a certain case level, you're going to abort mission and, and close up what you're doing. Well, you're destined to have that happen if, you're, if your thing is like one test two weeks before you enroll. It's it's not very smart. I mean, they're, they're, the stopping rule is coming. You're going to stop that school real quick. Um, I mean, in, in testing, I mean, it, this is something that we, you know, we just we get stuck with a lot in the healthcare um, realm because there's a CMS guidance that you should have testing of, of um, all, all workers in nursing homes um, up to, to once a week, you know, which is nearly impossible to, to test everybody who works in a nursing home weekly. Um, yes. And now with the turnaround time of, you know, five days or seven days, um, it, you get to this uh, reality that actually you're only infectious from about five to, I mean, really less than eight days after a positive test. So yes. essentially, like anyone who's positive is probably no longer contagious by the time you get the result back. <laughs> so oh, this it's, is, like, yeah. it's almost a protective measure. Like if you tested positive a week ago, you should be fine now to work. <laughs> and, and part of the reason testing is so slow is because we are using it so broadly like we are testing the worried well like everyone in the suburbs is going to get their test before they go on a you know hiking trip or something or and have a cocktail party that stupid article i read about the hamptons it's ridiculous yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and, and um and so you know it's not like the test itself takes long it takes like an hour to do in a lab but the labs are backlogged because there's too many tests being ordered and run on people and they're mostly low risk people and not really the people who should be tested if we're trying to actually target, you know, those at high risk of complications and populations that may have it and not know about it. Yeah. Let's go. We got two more things to cover. So statement three, the the Stanford authors. Children of all ages can be infected with SARS-CoV-2. While infection is less common in children than in adults, serious short-term and long-term consequences of COVID-19 are increasingly described in children and young people. Statements by Dr. Atlas, quote, children have nearly no risk of serious illness from COVID-19. It's not just that children are not at risk at all from this disease. They also do not even transmit the disease. Children don't have any kind of problem with COVID from the data. We know that the risk of the disease is extremely low in children, even less than that of seasonal flu. There's no risk to children, no significant risk, I should say. Then what are you protecting them from? If kids get the infection in this school, that's still okay. Um, 
I guess the only thing that I didn't like in that was that it's not just the children are not at risk at all from this disease. They also don't transmit the disease. There is a risk. It's not zero, um, but it is less than flu at those age groups. Am I wrong? What do you think, Dr. Morgan? I mean, th- this is the part. I mean, ev- everyone, uh, you know, is, seems so inflamed by comparing it to flu, although, you know, they're indistinguishable, as we may find this fall, um, except, you know, in, you know, uh, in how frequent they are or the complication rates in older, younger people. And it's true in, in uh, children, uh, they're more likely to die of the flu than COVID. And uh, I do think that like his statements go a little bit too far as far as yeah, a little too far, and it can't be yeah. transmitted. But the, even the the transmission data um, that's from South Korea, um, yeah, that was reassuring. Yeah, yeah. And Alistair Monroe had a, a good assessment of some of the papers with contact tracing because they they sort of uh, lumped everyone in together and said kids are at equal risk of spreading it, or at least kids greater than age ten. But even that, it seemed like it uh, didn't account for the fact that um, kids who were positive had an adult in the house who was positive often. So it does seem like kids are definitely much lower risk of spreading it and have really low risk of complications that is, you know, uh, lower than the flu. You know, and it's not zero. There are kids who have bad cases. There are kids who die and it's horrible. But, you know, that happens with flu every year also. Yeah, I think um, there are ongoing investigations that are genotyping a little bit of the people who got it from schools. So the question, of course, being is the kid spreading it to the adult or vice versa? And so I hopefully maybe we'll get some answers there. Um, now, the last two, they lump together. So this is this is the last one. The pandemic will be controlled. This is the Stanford authors. The pandemic will be controlled when a large proportion of a population has developed immunity, referred to as herd immunity, and that the safest path to herd immunity is through development of rigorously evaluated effective vaccines that have been approved by regulatory agencies. In contrast, encouraging herd immunity through unchecked community transmission is not a safe public health strategy. In fact, this approach would do the opposite, creating a significant increase in preventable cases, suffering, and death especially among vulnerable populations such as older individuals and essential workers. Dr. Atlas, we can allow a lot of people to get infected. Those who are not at risk to die or have a serious hospital requiring illness, we should be fine with letting them get infected, generating immunity on their own. And the more immunity in the community, the better we can eradicate the threat of the virus. Low risk groups getting the infection is not a problem. In fact, it's a positive. The reality is that when a population has enough people who have had the infection, since these people don't have a problem with the infection, that's not a problem. That's not a bad thing. When you isolate everyone, including all the healthy people, you're prolonging the problem because you're preventing population immunity. Avoiding unnecessary requirements for spacing of customers, though, it's not logical that otherwise healthy adults, especially younger age groups, should be isolated or maintain a six-foot spacing from each other. If infection is still prevalent, socializing among low-risk groups represents the opportunity for developing widespread immunity and eradicating the threat. In fact, infected people without severe illness are immediately available vehicle for establishing widespread immunity. By transmitting the virus to others in the low-risk group who then generate antibodies, they block the network of pathways towards the most vulnerable people, ultimately ending the threat. Extending whole population isolation would directly prevent that widespread immunity from developing. We know from decades of medical science that infection itself allows people to generate an immune response, antibodies, so that the infection is controlled throughout the population by herd immunity. Okay, so... What do you think about this? I think this is a tricky one because, um, you know, I think there was one, at least one thing he said that I was like, I think that goes a little too far. Um, but um, he has a different point of view. His point of view is that we ought to let it spread in these age groups. Now, that's not a zero risk thing. That's going to have some casualties. I mean, we know there is a death rate even at those ages of like 18, 25, 35, 40. There's going to be some casualties there. What do you think, Dr. Morgan? Um 
is it an acceptable trade-off or is he is he got is he gone too far I mean, you know, certainly listening to uh, his statements being read out loud, you know, most of them I said, I would not say it that way. Um, yeah, I would. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so I, I would certainly not want to be the person who says, yes, I, I validate everything he says is right. But I think that there are elements of truth in many of the things he said. And it kind of reminds me, there was a New York Times article about the, the doctor in Portland who was a liberal doctor who said we should have like COVID parties. And yes. uh, and he published an article in the Federalist or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and, where he had to go. Yeah, they, they, like I was in my office at like six thirty, and someone from the New York Times called asking for a quote, and I was like, "Oh, that's a dangerous <laughs> place to go." Yeah. But you know, essentially, was getting at the. But you know, I I dodged it enough. But you know, essentially saying like herd immunity it ultimately is the goal, whether you get that from vaccines or other things. Like that's the way um, infectious diseases end. And, you know, being opposed to herd immunity is kind of like being opposed to gravity. Like a certain <laughs> amount of it happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that um, how you get to that and how people are informed and in their role of choice. I mean, I think that, you know, trying to have a policy that actively encourages people to get infected. Most people would uh, have questions about that. Correct. There was, Correct. You know, full understanding on the part of those people. But, you know, there are obviously a lot of young people like in, you know, the 18 to 25 group who are going out there and doing things against the rules that are telling them not to. So, yeah, I mean, I think it would be one thing to relax the rules in certain groups as long as they seem to have some, you know, like as long as you gave them like adequate information. So it's it's very different, I guess, saying uh, you have to be shut down, you can't do things and you'll be breaking the rules if you do versus um, we won't tell you you're wrong, but the most careful way is to still avoid these things. And if you think you're high risk or if you don't want to get sick and have that low risk chance of something, then don't do it. Um, but I do think that, that, you know, the idea that there will be a vaccine that will save us at some point and we just need to hold on is a, a bit of a dangerous idea also. You know, I mean, we... We, at the beginning of this, I've uh, had this thought, and it hasn't changed, that, you know, in America, we pretend that we're Germany, and the conservatives pretend that we're Sweden, but we're really like Iran. Like, we're obviously not Germany, which has had, like, widespread testing and isolation in a single countrywide system so they can track people. Yes. And they drove their rates down low. They may be subject to, like, second and third waves because it can still come back, but it seems like a reasonable approach. You know, Sweden decided to to kind of like let it happen and try to protect the most vulnerable and didn't do a great job of that. But their death rate is still, you know, they have fewer death um, population average than America does. Yes. yes. And, and their rate is flat right now and America's is still going up. So, you know, and Belgium was worse than Sweden, but no one is uh, saying Belgium, Belgium screwed up. <laughs> right. You know, um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I think that we don't have either of those. And, uh, you know, I just think there needs to be a better debate about, you know, what is a realistic approach in the America that we have now and not some theoretical America. I think that that's one of the key points, which is we have the America we have now, which is a fragmented America with socioeconomic disparities, which we're going to talk about in the education portion of this episode. Um and I think we have the America we have now and we have to make the best decisions we can. Uh, do I agree with everything Scott Atlas says? No, I think he says a number of things that are a little bit too much, push it a little too far. I think you feel the same way, not how we would say things. But I guess the question is, how should this debate happen? Um, 
And, you know, it's happening now with lawyers who are submitting these kind of like written things of misstatements and a defamation counterclaim. And then they have to provide evidence of what they why they said what they said that he provided falsehoods. Oh, boy. Is this really how it should be played out? I mean, I think this is like the worst possible way. Um, You know, like him or not, um, I I think he's not an unintelligent person. You know, there's a reason why he's a Stanford professor and he worked there. Um, Do I agree with everything he's saying? No. Um, Does he have a point of view that's different than other people? Yeah. Um, But these are competing point of views. And I think the way to decide it is by people trying to argue and convince people in the academic spirit and not trying to file suits and countersuits or, you know, wherever this is going. Um, What do you think? No, I mean, I agree. And I think Scott Atlas may have been the the one initially filing a suit. Oh, I see. He instigated it. Yeah. Okay. I I think he instigated, which I certainly don't support. But I I think that like the the tone and the rhetoric has been similar on both sides, that it's, it's certainly not been oriented around saying, okay, well, you're right on some of these things, but you've got the wrong, you know, you have the wrong plan based upon that, you know, or, or, you know, something that would be more nuanced instead, it seems to be to dismiss everything that he's saying or considering, which, you know, certainly I think tends to suppress debate and tends to suppress like the scientific approach to this. And, and there are some people, you know, I think, um, you know, on, on the liberal side who are making good arguments, there's actually an article in, uh, the, um, Jacobin magazine, yes. Yes. you know, which, uh, is certainly like on the liberal side of things. Um, my so I, favorite magazine I've never read in my life. <laughs> I got to read that yeah. article. Yeah. Okay. Okay. As, as yeah. Today I've read one article in it. <laughs> I see. <laughs> you now read one article in there. I guess, yeah. um, you know, the reality of this debate on what to do with COVID policy is that um, the irony is also that the side on in favor of sort of strict lockdown, strict measures, they're not they're not winning their policy because there are many places in this country that just don't give a damn and they're going to do whatever they want to do, particularly red states. Unfortunately, um, they can only shape the policy in, in the narrow spheres of influence that they hold. Um, I'm not sure that's going to change that much, even if we had a new president, because, you know, this is not a lot. A lot of this is not federal policy. A lot of this is local and state policies. Um so there's going to be that um, people on the other side, uh, like Dr. Atlas, who favor, you know, accepting a higher level of infections, um, I think, outside of the vaccine setting. Uh, they also have to deal with folks who disagree with them, who will shut down colleges and universities and push back. Um, so they also can't really run their experiments. So I think what's emerging in between is this, you know, really interesting thing of what happens when you have a nation that is not central, not hierarchical, decentralized. You have vigorous political strife, fierce polarized debate. No one has power to shape the whole place's policy. People have strong and different opinions. They don't want to talk to each other. They just want to silence both sides, have to silence the other side. I mean, I think the net result is the policy we're following is, you know, what happens when everyone takes their hand off the wheel on the ship and it just goes where it goes. I mean, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, if you look at you know the the rates and the way things are going around America, it just seems like you know we have kind of a slow burn of infections. And yes, you know, to, to imagine that we that a vaccine will save us versus the fact that we'll just kind of burn out. You know, it's really hard to say which one we'll get to first. But uh, you know, it's it ends up being a mess of a situation that's you know primarily borne by the the poorest and uh, least privileged among us, which is a sad reality. 
And that's a sad reality. And we're going to be talking about that on the second half of this podcast because I have Vladimir Kogan talking about education policy. But I guess, I mean, I think these are thorny issues. Um, and and I think he, he does say things that are very provocative. Uh, some of what he says, there's a kernel of truth. Uh, much of what it is is, you know, I think a reasonable way to look at the data from a certain point of view. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to do this kind of eval of it. I've never, I hadn't read that until today. Um, and I hadn't been following what he was been saying. No, interesting. I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, we need national policy, we need guidance. Um, and, uh, you know, but we, we don't have that option. And it just seems like we've devolved into the camps that are like fighting it out. But, Kind of for unclear, there's no, there's no win really. Like, no you know, win. if you get your op-ed in the New York Times, that's sure it seems good, but that's not a win and it doesn't mean you're right either. So it's uh, just a frustrating time. Yeah, agree. Well, Dr. Morgan, thank you for your time taking us through this. We'll have to come back and talk more about the policy trade-offs, the challenges, and how absolutism in all its forms is poison. That's what a wise man taught me a long time ago. And and I see absolutism on both sides here. The absolutism that we can drive this virus to extinction and the absolutism that we can ignore this and it will solve itself. I mean, I think they're both sort of polar absolutisms. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's just kind of a, a, a slow, painful time to, to be an American and that much more to, to try to run an infection control program. Good luck to you, Dr. Morgan. Thanks for joining us. Great. Good talking. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is professor of medicine at Stanford University. He is both a medical doctor and a health economist, and he's done a number of important publications over his long career, now I think over 20 years plus at Stanford. Um, and we're going to be talking about COVID policy. So, Dr. Bhattacharya, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, um, I have been following with interest um, your uh, work in this space, and I think there's just so much to cover. So, so let's just jump right in. I mean, I guess one of the things I wanted you to explain a little bit is um, I think there's two things we got to get out as background. One, we have to talk about infection fatality rate and how it varies by age. And the other thing we have to talk about is what does it mean? What is years of life lost? So why don't we start with the second one first? You know, sure. um, people who are not health economists, um, they uh, may not be familiar with the concept of years of life lost, but I think it's an important con concept to introduce because when we make policy trade-offs, we want to minimize years of life lost. So what is years of life lost? Is it ageist? Why do economists use it and think about it? Why don't we, why don't we address that second thing first? Sure. Se second, second thing second, because like okay. I think the, the first, let's talk, let's, let's define terms. Yes. So, uh, you know, if, if someone is uh, uh, 50 like I am, um, I mean, my, my life expectancy uh, at age 50 is probably on the order of 25 to 30 years on that. I mean, I haven't looked up most, sure. most, you know, most recent numbers. Um, so if I were to die today, I'd lose an expectation 25 to 30 years. Actually, it's funny thing is like I was born in India in, in 1968 and uh, Indian boys born in 1968 had a life expectancy of 48. Yes. Uh, it was bimodal. So like, for instance, uh, the reason why was because many, there was a high infant mortality rate in India at the yes. time. Yes. And so a, a, a child dying at age one or zero 
that's a that that is you're gonna it's gonna have a big effect on life expectancy. Yes, Whereas massive, someone yes. dying at age eighty five is gonna have a much smaller uh, effect on the total years of life lost uh, and on life expectancy, like life expectancy of birth, right? So life is so the the years of life loss is a, is a simple mathematical concept, right? So is is it, it uh, how many years do you expect to have left given your situation? And uh, how many years? Uh, yeah, and, and of course, that's going to vary by age. Yes. And as you uh, get older, I mean, if somebody is 80, um, they can still have seven or eight years. Uh, it's it, So it's not always what it is, the life expectancy at, at birth. It changes over the course of one's lifespan. Now that you're 50, um, especially, you know, in 2020, it's probably something like 30 years of life uh, left. Unfortunately, 50 juvenile. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, um, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So it changes, it changes, like it, the, the fact that I survived my 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 youth is good vastly increased my life expectancy right yes. so my, my life expectancy at age three was no longer 48 it was much longer than yes that. yes uh, and so and, I, and the fact that i'm not survived at 52 that means i still have i have you know like i said somewhere 25 30 years in expectation left um so i think i think that that's a really important mathematical concept just it's neutral in that sense it's, it's neutral, just a yeah. fact right so the question about what you do about policy and that comes back to your second question about ageism um, and so that that is a much more difficult challenge. Uh, a policy that says we should only focus on years of life lost and say, okay, well, then we should just dump all of our resources only into infants. Yes. I, I don't think that's the right policy, right? Okay. I, I mean, it's, it's not, we're not Benthamites. We don't, we don't, uh, we're not, you know, say like. We're not pure utilitarians. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Okay. So, so there's, there's a inherent dignity in someone that's older, even if they have very few years of life left. Uh, in expectation, and there, we have, we have, as a society, I think, have an obligation to that to them as well. That's well put. Uh, but it's not infinite, just as it's not infinite to the to the youngest as well. So we it's, we we have to think about balances and trade offs. And I mean, that's just standard health economics. I mean, that's not that's not like anything brand new or different. It's not immoral. It's just prudent. You have no choice in a world where you have limited resources. You have to make difficult decisions about how to how to balance these uh, balance these difficult alternatives. Yes, that's well put. And um and I and I and I think you're you're right to raise that distinction that when we make these calculations, it's not a pure um uh, utilitarian calculus. Uh, to some degree, that's incorporated, but we also have to respect, I think, the dignity of people who are older. Um, and then the other thing to add about years of life lost is it also includes um your potential years of life include your comorbidities and your otherwise general health. If you're institutionalized or hospitalized in a nursing home, it might be far shorter um, than if you were 80, the same age, but otherwise um, in your own house and able to get around. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that there, there's there's some aspect of that too. I mean, you want to, you want to, uh, you, you, I mean, medicine is, it, it's, is in part, it's, it's not to like help us live forever. It's to comfort us when we're, when we're sick. It's yes. to provide uh, cure, cures when they're available. It's to, it's, it's, it's a, it's a complicated set of things um, and when we uh, when we when we think about what the right thing to do is, of course, we need to account for what condition are you in. Yes. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the other two concepts that I think we have to define at the outset so everyone is clear: um, infection fatality rate and um, and case fatality rate. Uh, of which uh, y you have uh, you've you've dared comment on this space, and you and you've paid a little bit <laughs> for. But yeah, I, you've dared comment. I did yeah. not realize. I have to say at the, at the outset. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I did not realize this was like a, a, a massive political issue. Yeah, this, I didn't know either. Yeah. Um, so so case fatality rate is in some sense amorphous. So it depends on what you mean by a case. Yes. So if you look on the the Hopkins. Uh, 
you know the the, the pandemic uh, site with the with the with the red red uh, red circles or uh, or you know worldometer or whatever, you can very easily quickly get a sense of what the cases are. Um, but it's actually it's a complicated thing, and it, those graphs hide a lot of important detail that uh, that's worth knowing. So a case is either somebody who has some, has a set of symptoms that we think are consistent with COVID. Now, that's how people diagnosed in the earlier days when the, the amount of testing wasn't really you know adequate, um, uh, or and or and someone who has been tested typically with a PCR test and positive for COVID. Right, so uh, a, a case it doesn't last forever. It yes. ends in one of two ways: either you are cured of COVID. I mean, it's it's not a, a virus like HIV, which hangs around forever, um, or even like chickenpox, which you know varicella zoster, which hangs around forever. Um, but uh, but it's a virus that uh, that either you're cured of it or you're or you die from it, mm -hmm. one or the other, yeah, or di die with it, I should mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. um, the, the 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 cases then are an underestimate of all the set of people who have had it. Yes. So, the, in fact, it turns out the evidence shows that the vast majority of people who get it are cured of it. They just, they have it. It's like a, uh, in, in that sense, it's like the flu or the cold, right? You, most of the people that get a flu or a cold, they're not, they're not people with colds forever. They just, right. they had the cold and it's Recovered. gone. So the right. same thing is true of COVID. Um, uh, now the, of course, the, the rate at which people die from it is higher than it is for a cold. Uh, flu is more complicated. We'll come back, come back to that. Sure. Uh, uh, so the infection fatality rate is is a different denominator than the case. The denominator in the case is all the people that that have been designated as having it uh, at one point at, at current you know, currently right. That's essentially what you're seeing in worldometer or whatnot. Um, the, the the infection fatality rate is the total number of people who have ever had it. Including people who weren't identified as cases. Yes. And why is that important? Because it turns out that the set of clinical presentations is absolutely enormous in this thing. It, it ranges from utterly asymptomatic, maybe uh, somewhere on the order of a third, could be higher, could be higher, could be a little lower. I'm not. Sure, I don't think I have a precise number. Um, uh, to uh, to to people who have that severe viral pneumonia that makes the news that, that kills you in the in the ICU. Right. Who need who need ECMO, and that is sort of one of the more interesting things about this virus is that spread is so huge. And I guess the other thing interesting about the virus is that the infection fatality rate varies tremendously with age. The age gradient is, you know, incredibly steep. Um, why don't you walk us through that? Uh, what does it mean for somebody who's five years old versus eighty-five years old? You know, that's such an important point. I think uh, our, our policy absolutely needs to reflect that because that's the central fact about this virus. If you're under thirty, what the the, the data currently shows is that your your risk of dying of the flu is higher. If you're infected with the flu, you're more likely to die than if you are infected with COVID. If you're under 30, I mean, it could even be up to 40, but let, let's say 30 to be safe, because uh, there's the, the numbers are, are are in dispute. Sure. Um, that but that fact is not in dispute. Uh, now, if you if you're over 65, it's much more deadly than the flu. Mm -hmm. There's a th on the order of a thousand to one difference between uh, the youngest people who are infected, what risk they face. It's actually on the order of one in a hundred thousand. Or lower, uh, fewer kids have. If you're if you're a kid, if you're if you're under say eighteen, you get this. Uh, there are fewer kids have died of COVID than of the flu this year. That's yeah. absolutely a fact. Um, less than hundred, one in a hundred thousand de death. Uh, and then uh, if you're over sixty five, it's absolute. It's it's very deadly. It's on the order of three in a hundred 
right? So to, to, to now more if you have comorbid conditions, this is this covers a lot of uh, you know, sort of suppresses a lot of clinical nuance. It's very important too. But the first order thing is the age age gradient. Um, now, why is that important for for policy? Because it turns out that people interact with each other in, in predictable ways depending on their age, right? So you're not you you actually get uh, people tend to interact mostly with people really close to their age. Yes. Like 50, I, most of my friends are in their, in their, in their fifties or a little younger. Um, uh, now there's predictable changes in that. So like, for instance, you, you can get, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, 30 to 50, 40 year olds interacting with children. That happens. Yes. Teachers um, often. Yeah. Yeah. And parents. Um, yeah. And, and then, and then also, uh, older people interact with, uh, with people in their fifties. Some. Yes. Because, you know, you're, you're like, I mean, I, 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 you know, like I have an 80 year old mom, I, sure. I, I'll interact with her. Right. Sure. So that, but for the most part, 80 year olds interact with 80 year olds, 50 year olds interact with 50 year olds and so on. Like it's it, with some, some spread around that. That has an enormous consequences then for how we think about the disease, uh, how to contain the disease yeah, and how, and who's at risk. Well, one thing I I want to kind of just get um, in addition to that, I mean, I think so those are all extremely important. And then the other thing to kind of capture, I think, is that in addition to thinking about the infection fatality rate, I think the other thing that's sort of interrelated we have to think about is the absolute number of potential people who are at risk. And I guess... You know, many people bristle at comparisons to any other disease because to some degree people at least believe there is some, you know, uh, intrinsic immunity to flu. The seasonal flu is a little bit different than prior years. It's not a lot different. So there's some people who have some sort of baseline resistance. At the start of this, people felt like there was 0%, you know, baseline um, resistance uh, or uh, uh, to SARS-CoV-2. We now are learning that poten potentially there's some T cells that are actually uh, uh, that actually can cross react with multiple coronavir coronaviruses. Uh, but I guess it's also worth stating that, you know, there's a certain number of people at risk. There, modelers are comfortable saying what that is, but I think those of us who are empiricists have some difficulty. There's a lot of uncertainty there. What exactly that fraction is at risk? Yeah, I don't know that fraction either, but, yeah. but, but it's more than zero. More than, yeah. Like, I mean, it has to be more than zero. Like, you can't explain the data out of Sweden, for instance, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, many places where the, the um, seroprovence data look like they're they don't look that impressive. Twenty five percent of the population, twenty twenty, uh, yeah, and and yet it looks like the, the infection is curtailed. Sort of, yeah, you yeah. can't explain that. Uh, and then the traditional model that the that the the quote herd immunity threshold is one minus one over R naught. That doesn't quite explain it either because that'll put it at about sixty percent. You know, so it's well, I mean, some, that that yeah. one that that number is interesting. Like it comes out of a model where there's homogeneous yeah. mixing across different across the population. But we just talked about how there is not homogeneous I see, mixing. I see. So that's one of the prerequisites of that model is that there's homogeneous mixing, and that may not be an empirical uh, fact. It's not. It's, we know it's not an empirical fact. And the lack of homogeneous mixing is important because what that means is that, uh, you know, you, you don't, you, you, it's not 60% of the population that needs to get infected. It's like which fraction of the population. So just put it another way. Uh, the set of people who interact with more people, who tend to interact with more people, um, those people are going to have to be more influential in terms of disease spread yes. than people who are, who interact with hermits who sit at home alone. I and mean, that's like, I think that's the idea behind the lockdown, right? Let's, let's make us all hermits <laughs> right. um, um, uh, in, and, in order to slow the spread. But like, but I think that that, that, um, that's a really important fact, right? So that, that means that you don't need 60% or 70% or whatever the initial model suggested for her immune, for, for, uh, well, actually, I'm going to use the word herd immunity. I, I want to be very careful. I'm not arguing for herd immunity. Right, as a strategy, I know. Right? Yeah, that's got to be um, careful about that. Yeah. 
Um, uh, go ahead. But yeah, I mean, I think I think thinking about as a single number is a mistake. Yes, it's not. It's more about like who interacts with who, given the situation we're in. Uh, and as economists, we tend to think about this as I think a little different than epidemiologists. Um, people react to the threat of disease in their own personal behavior. Uh, of course, yes. Um, Sweden didn't ha have zero reaction to the disease. If you look at the the the, the, uh, the uh, mobility data in Sweden, they they dropped just like everyone else in the world as soon as the the threat of the disease. By that you mean cell phone tracking data. Cell phone tracking data tells a story that when people get scared, they watch the news and they hear a lot a lot of COVID deaths. They they change their behavior. Period. Regardless of what a lot of policies are done. Yeah, and so you didn't. You don't need a lockdown policy to, yeah. when people are scared. They will. They will interact less with other people. And when they're less this. scared, they'll interact more. So that's the other thing. So even if you don't liberalize the policy, when they're less scared, people will do what less scared people do, which is go out on dates and go out to picnics and do things like that when they're less scared. Yeah. No. Exactly. I mean, they'll live their normal life, right? Yeah. And, and I think that that um, that that idea. Ha uh, also needs center policy yes. really carefully. So like think, thinking about a policy of essentially an a, a, a infinite lockdown until we get a vaccine is not consistent with with uh, with, with what we, we would expect anyone to be able to do. You, in, another, in another way, you would need an enormous draconian state response yeah. to try to enforce that. That's not consistent with, I think- uh, A free in, society. In, I mean, I think you can exactly. do that in a dictatorship, but you can't do it in a free society. People will revolt and rebel. And sometimes one of the things that's challenging is, you know, this is one of the things I think about, which is how do you handle someone who's refusing to wear a mask? And sometimes they call in the police and they escalate the situation. But one of the challenges with that is in in an effort to police it, you may, you know, spread it much more because you're getting a ton of human interactions going on. That's just one yeah. sort of microcosm in, in which this can kind of take place. I think that brings up a really important point. You're absolutely right. Uh, the, 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 the key thing is to me is when we think about public health responses, we need to understand what the constraints actually are, yeah. not what we wish they were. Work, right? You, you wish you could snap your finger and put a mask on the guy. You can't do that. You're going to have to hold him down, drag him to prison, put him in the back of the car. He's going to be coughing on the cops. He's going to be coughing <laughs> on the intake. I mean, you know, realistically, how are you going to get this person who doesn't want to wear this thing to wear this thing? And at some point, is the juice worth the squeeze or is it not worth it at all to police it? You know, that's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think we, uh, like that's the, that's the issue, right? What's the constraint? And if you have a... Uh, in the back of your mind that there is no constraint, you're going to make a big mistake. And you're going to be, I just want to know, you'll be frustrated. You'll be like, oh, how, how come no one's listening to me? Right? How come we have to work we have to push this? I think that's a lot of the, the root of the public health. The problems I've seen in the public health response is that is this sort of lack of respect for, for constraints that are, that, that comes just from humans being humans. People yeah. being I think one of the things that, you know, perhaps you and I and others have a little bit of this perspective is because we've had some clinical experience in our lives. And we know that often the doctor knows if I do X, Y, and Z, things are going to go perfect. Then you actually go there in the clinic and you try to get X, Y, and Z done in the real messy world of real people who don't always remember to take their medicines and don't always want to do these things. It's not always as simple as the model. Um, and, and sometimes I worry that some of the people who've had a uh, very sizable and oversized role in policymaking, they don't have that sort of rubber meets the road experience of how challenging things are, how unanticipated consequences arise and how the, you know, sometimes plans sound perfect, but when you get to the reality of people who don't always agree and have different feelings, it's not so easy to implement in this perfect way. And, and that's the real policy. Good policy works among people as they are, not as we wish they were. 
I think it's really wise. Oh, I should say, I, I don't see patients for a living. So I know, like, yeah. I, but you previously, yeah. yeah. But like my, my wife is an oncologist. She comes home frustrated because her, her uh, she, she had, you know, like a patient with cancer. She's told them to stop smoking during the chemo, during the, during the radiation therapy or whatever. And they won't do, I mean, that, but that, but that's just, I, I mean, but what do you do? Do you, do you go to their house and force them to stop? I mean, you can't do you that. Can't, like, as a, no. as a doctor, which you can't, no. You have to, you give good advice as best you can. You, 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 you try to connect with the patient. So that it, 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 so that they they uh, you know you 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 try to make an impression where they are. Yes, and and that's a great example because um you know let's say you're del- the patient has head and neck cancer and you're doing radiotherapy um there is a risk that if you push the gray to where you want it um and they're smoking all the time they're gonna get terrible mucositis and it's gonna be even worse. You wish they would stop smoking, but at some point you have to lower the radiation dose. It's is it suboptimal? Yeah, but that's life. You're not gonna be able to do everything you want to do because people are not always gonna do what you wish they would do. And I don't think they're necessarily bad or good. Good. It's just people. People are people. Um, yeah. Two things I wanted to add real quick to sort of what you're saying, because I, I mean, I think there, there are things you've said elsewhere, and I think there are astute points, which is, you know, you're fully cognizant that IFR is not a fixed thing. It is a product of uh, how overwhelmed the healthcare system is, the prevalence of treatments, the particular age and comorbidities of people getting the disease. It's a moving variable. And the same thing is true um, for the herd immunity threshold. It's a moving variable. If people's behavior is suddenly parties and, um, you know, you call it homogenous mixing, but the way it looks like on a screen is like that the tennis ball model where everyone's just bouncing around. The truth is we are not bouncing around like that model. Um, but if we start bouncing around more, then that that percentage of people who are going to be infected is going to go higher before things start to cool down. And if we start mixing less, it's going to go down. So these are all kind of moving targets. Yeah. And and then let's connect it back to one, that one other thing we just talked mm-hmm. about before at the beginning is the infection fatality, right? Who, who, do you, who do you want to get this? I mean, in some, nobody in some wishful way, but that's not yes, possible. Right, that's not. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that right now it's like something already or like 60 to 100 million Americans have got it based on the infection fatality rate, sure. the, 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 the seroprevalence status. Yes. Um, okay, so if that's, if that's true, uh, and you're going to allocate the 60 to 100 million, who do you wish had it? Yes. Well, of course, the people who had the low mortality rate from it. Yeah, that, of course. The vanishingly low mortality rate. That's who sort of the right... Um, like if you were if, to step back and say, now, I, I, now you don't, you don't have in the option space, let's get rid of it. Yeah. I think that that also has been at the heart of a lot of poor thinking on this, that disease eradication is somehow possible. Um, that was never possible. Uh, not, 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 not when it, not, you know, not in January, not in February, not in March. It was already too late, I think, in that yeah. sense. Um, and so, and, and we actually, funny enough, I think we still premise our policy, our people, people premise their policy recommendations on this notion that, uh, we can eradicate. The I, I think people, I think many people still believe that with the prevalence rates of, of, of right now in middle of September, um, that starting the fall, uh, that we can eradicate this through contact tracing, but you know, contract tracing, it's easy to do when there's five people. It's not so easy to do when there's five million people. It's impossible. Uh, it's impossible. impossible. Yeah, and I mean, if there's fifty, if there's you know fifty to hundred million people in the United States that had it, you know, eventually, I mean, at some at some point, your contact tracing circles, as they go out in, in concentric circles, it was, is going to encompass the entire country. Uh, and actually, it's the other coming back to this question about like we should treat humans like humans. Um, if you are contact traced, okay, Vinay, you got the thing. And you and I interact over Zoom. I don't know if you know, but you can pass the thing over Zoom. <laughs> um, uh, the contact tracer shows up in my. It, it would, if you talk to the contact tracer, would you give me up? <laughs> you know, that, but that, that's a terrific point because there have been some studies that show reluctance of people to name other people they've interacted with, and that is not equally distributed. Um, people from marginalized or poorer groups are. 
um, perhaps more reticent um, in some stuff in some things I've read for the reason, for mean, the like, reason right? Yeah, because that's yeah, like you if know. you if you give me a yeah, that's two week quarantine for me. Yeah, right. Uh, and you don't want to do that. I wouldn't do that to you. Like, Let, I mean, let's I, let's you, say you're a working, you're a single mother. You're working. Um, you know, you're you're working somewhere. If I give you up, that's a loss of livelihood to you. Um, I might yeah. be reluctant to do that. Yeah, and 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 LA County, I saw some uh, some uh, a story. Apparently, sixty percent of people contacted by contact tracers won't cooperate at all. Yeah, I saw um, that. Too. And you know, that's not uh, surprising at all. They're not criminals. They're people who had this had this condition. Yes. Uh, asking them to give up their friends and impose costs on their friends in this way, especially when it's the case where we have a, a regime where you're 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 going to be in quarantine even if you don't have the sickness, right? Because we don't we won't know for several days because it takes several days for the test to come back, and even after the test come back, some places keep you in quarantine just in case, I guess. Um, I mean that with that system, there, there's no chance of contact tracing working. Let's talk about one sort of concrete policy example, because I think this is something we can walk through. You know, I think uh, one of the things I, I struggle with is I think some people who who think about what's the right thing to do. I mean, I guess one thing to say is that uh, it doesn't matter what training you have or what background you have. Everyone thinks they know the right answer. I mean, I'm often <laughs> struck by how confident that everyone is so confident. You know, I read I read a summary of one article and I know what's the right answer about schools. Um, you know, but I spent a lot of time because I, I, I didn't know the answer. I didn't have what my answer was. I, but I've spent so much time reading articles and articles and, I, and I'm trying to sort of piece it through. And I started by like writing down, um, you know, just a list of domains that I thought would be important. And, and I'm going to ask you about the schools question. So why don't we just focus on, I think, less than 16 years old or less than 12 year old school children. So like this, this is an important time in development. Um, and, and I started going through and I write, you know, um, if they have in-person versus online school, um, in with the constraints of the reality, which is not everyone has laptop, not everyone has Wi-Fi, not everyone has a parent who can sit down next to whatever a five-year-old and hold them down for getting through school day. Um, you know, with the constraints we have, what are the benefits to the kids' education, kids' social development, the risks to the kids' health, in both these scenarios, the risks to teachers and teachers' health, um, the risks to uh, parents and their career, and then sort of those unanticipated effects like, um, you know, you're never going to be able to shut down all schools. Private schools are going to go full steam. And so people who have money will start to pull their kids out of schools. Um, and then what might remain, and I've been reading some articles about this, is and this is just one sort of unintended consequence people didn't see, was um, one of the reasons schools are good is that some people in there have money and are advocates for the school. Um, they're often socioeconomically advantaged people. If they start moving their kids to charter schools or private schools, that public school is not just going to suffer this year. It's going to suffer for the next 10 years. You know, so these are some of the broader unanticipated effects. So I wonder if we might walk through and maybe you have other domains that you think about. But I think maybe walk well, us through. You covered a lot of it okay. well. But yeah. let me just, yeah. uh, can I just talk, talk let's yes. talk, start with like what, what is the data? What are the data on school safety? Okay. So uh, we're going to start with the bucket of like what's the risk to kids and parents and the teachers. And yeah. teachers, yeah. and then, then move out from that because yes. what you just described is a is a is, is a incredible agenda and, and, <laughs> and not wrong at all. And yeah. I think you're in, you're exactly heading in the right direction. Um, so first, uh, the the we talked about the infection fatality rate among kids. It's it's very 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 low compared mm -hmm. to uh, many other respiratory diseases the kids face, um, and, and that is enormously good news. Enormously good because if I had if you had a virus that had a two percent infection fatality rate, yes. In kids, yes. I wouldn't send my kids to school. Of course, yeah, that's a that's a steep steep rate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want a two in a hundred risk of death for that. But I, could, I mean, especially if I could just figure out some way to educate them at home. Um, uh, uh, one in a hundred thousand. Well, I mean, 
you that, know, that's I, the risk I, of taking me, the bus. Yeah, let me just say, but let me put it this way: it, it is it is more safe to have our kids, from the kids' perspective, as far as the kids are concerned, in school than not than to to keep leave them at home. It's mm-hmm. more risky to leave them at home. Um, for for kids, uh, schools are not simply places for education, but also places for uh, nutrition. You know, I think a third of our a th- some of the third or half of our kids have either subsidized or free free school meals. They get yeah. most of their calories in schools. Yeah. Um, the 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 uh, abuse is picked up in schools. Yeah, child child abuse is picked up in schools. For for mental health, it's enormously important. Uh, you know, youth suicide, adolescent suicides are 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 picking up, and uh, and and not not surprisingly, like kids are meant sort of meant to be in community with one another. Um, uh, if you have special needs, that's where where parents with uh, kids with special needs tend to get their their services. Um, uh, so I think just from a perspective of kids themselves. The services provided in school are irreplaceable mm-hmm. in person in, in in school, whereas on the other side of that you have this one in a hundred thousand risk to them additional if they happen to get it, right? Yes, and you say uh, that because based on IFR data. Yeah, yeah, and and you're talking about the age group particularly, um, you know, above the age of five and below the age of fifteen, say. Yeah, uh, and, and I think you're on that order. Yeah, on I that mean, order. Because like, we're talking about a two in a thousand, you know, uh, two in a thousand to three in a thousand. That's roughly the IFR in everybody. That's the average. That's the but average. For kids, right? it's much, much lower. Exactly. It's yes. a thousand to one, just we talked about, right? Yeah. So it's one in a hundred thousand, yes. I think, for kids for mortality. Right. Uh, I mean, I will, uh, I will expose my kids to a one in a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand risk. But in, and, in exchange, and Jay, in I think you, you, you do it even when there's not COVID, right? Your kids walk to school, they take a car to school. That risk might not be uh, an, uh, out of that ballpark, you know, kids who have to travel to school. You're already exposing your kids t- to that risk when you send them to school anyway. With the flu. With, yeah, it's, and the, the flu, and the flu seasons, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's all kinds of infectious diseases that we live our lives around. We don't, I mean, to, to, uh, the, this idea that we can somehow eradicate that risk altogether yeah. is, is is a mistake, right? It's always this question of trade-offs. Okay. And that so, trade-off is, is not, it's not, it's not, I mean, I suppose it's possible other people could differ, but I think the vast, vast, vast majority of people, uh, but just based on their behavior alone, they send their kids to school. Yes. They make um, that before. choice. They vote with their feet every day. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think, I think that that's, that's the, the right and prudent choice. Okay. Now talk um, about um, the teachers. Right. Okay. So now here we have this absolutely remarkable set of facts that I did not expect at the outset of the epidemic. And mm-hmm. you talk about reading, this is something I've, I've learned and I've never, never expected, which is that it seems like kids pass on the disease at much lower rates yes. to adults than kids, uh, than, than, than you might, than you would expect. In fact, the, many of the people have studied it very closely, yeah. collecting data on it yeah. from around the world say things like, we can't find a single case uh, of a kid passing it to an adult. Yeah. In our, and they're like these detailed contact tracing studies from uh, not just one country. I think 20, I've seen, I've read papers yeah. in 20 some countries, like, you know, Iceland, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, uh, 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 Ireland, the UK, uh, you name the country that is, that has looked at this and they conclude the same thing. Yeah. That, that uh, in some sense, the, the adults at the schools are more at risk for, to, as far as COVID goes to each other. To each other. Yes. Are. Yes. And, and to giving it to the kid. There's some ongoing genotyping studies that will hopefully result in the near future where we will get even more evidence. But, you know, my reading of the evidence is the same as your reading of the evidence, which is, this is such an, in, I mean, to some degree, I guess, uh, it's it's very unusual that there's a virus with a steep age gradient, and that the youngest people aren't the aren't primarily spreading it. It's a very yeah, unusual I, I, virus, and that's Spence. 
I mean, that's that's a remarkable fact that yeah. has come out in the medical literature, in, in the medical literature. Uh, but for some reason, a lot of people haven't absorbed that fact in their commentary about schools. They still think about this as if it were the flu. Yeah. So this is a this is a good example, I think, of where uh, the analogy is. I think the by the way, I think these kinds of analogies are very helpful because they give give a frame of reference. But you have to like understand that they, that they are actually different things if like say based on what they are so like i think uh but here the flu really sort of uh, the flu analogy sort of breaks down kids pass the flu from from kids, uh, kids. To, 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 to their parents yeah, and to, to their, their parents, yeah, they absolutely yeah. do that yeah. um there's no there's no question about that now uh, the, the other remarkable thing about this literature is that it's at the same time this literature is finding this sort of empirical remarkable empirical fact that kids pass it on to adults at lower rates it's also finding that kids have the virus in their nostrils at very high levels yeah. if they get sick yeah or if they have if they if, they, if they're infected uh, actually sick and infected are two different things in the case Correct. of the kids yeah um it, it turns out that uh, that that uh, now we don't. I don't think we fully understand the reason. I think maybe it could come back to the T cells, uh, T cell yeah. sort of mucosal immunity you were talking about earlier. Um, but, but but for whatever reason, you the, the kids have the virus in their nostrils, and they don't pass it on to the to, to adults. They're not at infectious. Now it could also be that um, you know there's this emerging literature on on um, on, and this is something I didn't know or didn't appreciate uh, in the early days of the epidemic. The PCR test we think of as perfect um, is not perfect. Yeah, uh, there are actually a lot of false positives potentially, uh, and, it, and it depends partly on how many times you uh, uh, sort of you know PCR you you double the amount of genetic material with each cycle. I mean that's how you PCR amplifies. You have one copy, two copies, four copies, eight copies. You cycle. Um, it turns out that if you cycle, uh, it, it, suppose you need. 35 cycles, so two to the 35th copies before you've decided that the virus is present. It turns out that for the most, uh, uh, the, the, the evidence that's emerging is that if you need that many cycles in order to detect the virus, the virus that was originally present wasn't that infectious, wasn't, was at such a low level that it wasn't that infectious. So it could be that you have viral load, and it, uh, the, but the viral load is too small to be infectious, or, or it could also be that kids tend to respond to this asymptomatically um, and so they're, you know, asymptomatic people pass on the virus at lower rates. The, the, the thing mostly spreads by droplets, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, I mean, to, to, to sort of, uh, you're, I think you're getting into some of the potential mechanistic reasons why, uh, biological reasons why this might be the case. Uh, I guess another thing could be the, the different type of antibody response, mucosal antibodies or, or IgA antibodies. I guess, to be honest, to some degree, we won't, we won't answer that question, but it appears to be from the best available evidence that this is sort of an empirical fact. Um, and, and putting it all together, I guess, your, your summary would be that um, although you would acknowledge um, that by running schools, there is going to be some risk to the teachers, um, that risk uh, is not zero. Um, but that risk might not be a whole heck of a lot uh, higher um, than uh, a rip-roaring flu season. Um, it might be something in that ballpark. Um, nevertheless, it should be something considered. Um, um, and their IFR is certainly higher, but thank God the IFR for a 40-year-old is still not, um, you know, the worst IFRs like this virus can get in, in the higher age groups. And so you might be willing to say something like, if there are people who are 55 plus um, or have medical problems or are particularly concerned, we might make some accommodations for particular individuals. But, you know, uh, a young teacher, 25-year-old teacher, 30-year-old teacher, not, uh, you know, who is sort of living by themselves, you know, not too worried, um, in good health. 
Um, if that person wants to go and teach, God bless him, you know, just like we're, you know, I'm attending on the wards, you know, stuff like that. You know, we, we do our jobs, you know, in sickness yeah, and health. Yeah. I mean, it's teaching is an essential service. Yeah. I, as far as, I mean, I don't know legally, but it is uh, from, from my, my point of view, um, uh, you know, as someone who, who values education, um, I, I don't think, you have, I mean, I just, it's just, it's just an essential activity. Yes. Um, and we should treat it like an essential activity, just like, like, like other essential activities. Um, we, we, we take precautions to make, to protect the people engaging in them. So you wear PPEs when you go on the wards. I mean, yeah. you are absolutely must. Um, especially if you, if you're treating a COVID patient, sure. you should wear it, or a tuberculosis patient or, right. or of know, course, whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, now that, that is absolutely true. So we, 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 we work to protect them, but the job has to get done. Yeah. I mean, it's vital for society that we, uh, we, 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 um, uh, educate our young. And, and for me to go to clinic. Um, and so, okay. So then we're talking about the bucket of the safety bucket. And let's talk about some of the other buckets that people don't talk so much about. Um, I think people think that educating a child, it's just like giving them information in their brain, but it's more than that. As an economist, there've been a number of studies that link educating to a child to their long-term career outcome, the amount of money they earn in their lifetime. And that may be a proxy for their longevity, uh, their ability. And, and then the other things that are hard to articulate is that educating a child um, allows them to participate in political processes with some information, some civics knowledge, understanding how the world works. Educating a child um, allows them uh, to to pursue different things in their life. It, it allows them to be born in the lowest socioeconomic class, but die in the richest. I mean, it is an incredible transformative thing um, that liberals and progressives have long championed for good reason, uh, because it changes the life course of kids. I wonder if you might want to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've never thought about it as a political issue. Like, I think, I think everyone liberal conservative whoever you yeah. are values the educate like, like educating your ki- your kids edu- educating kids we our civilization is trans- transferred by that process of education um, and as you say it has long-term consequences uh, b- both, both and like this is actually a classic uh, thing I mean if, if there's one thing I know in health economics the, the health economics literature is absolutely solidly established is the long-run consequence of education on health yes it's solid I, literature. Yeah, like so, uh, the kids that are, you have, uh, they're, they're, they're studies like if uh, when the mandatory uh, uh, yeah age for kindergarten age of, of of having to be in school went up by a year, fifty years later, there's less diabetes in that cohort. I mean, things like that, right? Yeah. So stuff you would, I, I mean, in some sense, you kind of you look at it and go, uh, can that be? But of course, it can be, right? Because that that education has these like long run snowball effects that change your life fundamentally. Including making you want to invest more in your health, it's it, it's just it just it just must, and that's what the empirical literature suggests. Yeah. So there's long run health consequences. There's also like um, uh, there's also long run uh, job concept job and other other consequences. So for instance, uh, there's an OECD report that's just about to come out that I, I was reading reading a, couple, a few days ago that says that. Uh, the, the the stopping our kids from getting this kind of in-person learning for just a year will have a, a one and a half percent hit on our GDP. I saw that. Yeah. Perpetuity. Like tr- truly I mean, 12 trillion dollar hit or something over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is that's just mind boggling. Right. Yeah. Poor people. We, we are going to be a poor world as a consequence of these lockdowns. And that itself has a hit, a hit on our health. Yes. Right. So um, it's not it's not for, you know, life expectancy has been going up continuously for that for the more or less for the past hundred years yeah. um, with recent exception yeah yeah, yeah. But, or longer actually but in conjunction with the our getting richer yeah those are those are causally connected things if we get poor we will get we will be less long-lived and i think that's important to state because education and money 
uh, are are also health. They're not. It's not money or health. They, that is a vehicle for health. It's a vehicle for prosperity, and it's a vehicle for health. Uh, often for the most marginalized people, the people whose parents were poor, grew up poor, and their children have opportunity for something better. Um, I think education, early childhood education, is the only thing that if Donald Trump says, "I support that," people may not actually just. Uh, uh, <laughs> they may not <laughs> actually know, not support. You got to yeah. be careful. Yeah, you got to be careful. He, if he says it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, he seems to bring out very strong people, uh, strong feelings of people. Yeah, he? we'll come um, to that. We'll come to that. Uh, but Go you know, ahead. like yeah. actually, I want to. I want to. Like, it's, this is really worth. Uh, uh, Spending a little time yes. on it because, and you made this point. I, I know I, it's, uh, this 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 intervention, this lockdown, and the, the shutdown of schooling will probably do more. Probably will certainly do more to expand educational inequality than anything that we've done in fifty years. Yeah. And that's that's important to say. And then let's talk about the last bucket I wanted to talk about, which is the kids' mental health. You alluded to it. Um, you know, I mean, to some degree, it's a tricky issue. I've looked at some of these studies and I thought some, you know, some have holes in it. I mean, of course, you know, kids have a lot of anxiety and stress now, but, you know, so so do it's hard to tease out the two things, which is how much anxiety and stress is from being cooped up with your parents all day and how much anxiety and stress is from the fact that everyone's under anxiety and stress. I think that's a difficult thing. But I think there are some important things that we do know. One, um, uh, many, many commenters have been concerned as childhood life is increasingly moving from in person to virtual, that there have been lots of unintended consequences of that anxiety depression among children particularly girls more than boys um the virtual world is not the same as the real world there's a reason why you have to see people face to face there's a reason why it's nice to have a conversation and there be no record of it for uh, forever you know i think there are some serious downsides to social media we are taking um a social animal and we're moving them in a way that's unprecedented that this is some you know kids who've never moved in this way um that is liable to have serious i think psychological implications for those kids. Um, maybe walk us through some of your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I think we have to acknowledge there's some uncertainty here, um, but it's reasonable to think that it's good for kids to to, to play each other, play on the playground. There's a reason why we've done that for 100,000 human years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- I mean, well, like, so that's those socialization things have long-term psychological consequences, yeah. no question. And I, I agree with you. The, the literature on, on this right around COVID, or there's some challenges in, in, uh, in sort of sussing out exactly the causality. Um, but it had, you have to look at the broader context of, a, of, of, of the, the broader literature about about uh, loneliness, about disconnection, and the, the, that, the connection between that and psychological, uh, the, you know, distress, the depression, uh, suicidality, all those things. And there, I think the, the literature is is uh, is pretty strong. I mean, yeah. there there is a very strong literature that suggests that if you are if you are disconnected from your social group. Uh, and it doesn't, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think anyone thinks that the, the online, uh, is a, is an adequate substitute for that. Yeah. Uh, for, and especially for younger people that, that, that has long, that's going to have consequences. Um, I mean, specifically around COVID, yes, the, the, the literature, I think still needs, to, is still, is, is still in, in play. Um, but I don't think that that, con- that conclusion, I mean, it would, it would surprise me to hear a psychologist tell me, yeah, yeah, it's good for you, good to be alone. Yeah. Um, I, um yeah. actually for young adults, it's absolutely shocking, right? So there's a there's a CDC study saying that one in four young adults seriously considered suicide in June. Yeah, seriously, that's that's that is it's for them. Remember, the COVID risk mortality risk is relatively low. Uh, there's anxiety around the fear of COVID, of course, but a lot of that is the lockdown. Yeah, fear of. I mean, uh, that was one of the studies that I guess. I mean, I, I, that's a concerning figure. There's no doubt about that. And I think to some degree that's driven by social isolation, to some degree that's driven by perhaps their parents are struggling financially to some degree. And these are all products of the human response to 
COVID-19, maybe not so much the virus itself. Yeah, even for older people, like I've yeah. worked on loneliness in older populations. Um, I mean, it's it's deadly there too, right? Yes. It's, it's uh, I mean, you know, it's a great killer. Not, yeah, it's not a, it's not a uh, an accident that UK has a minister of loneliness, <laughs> uh, literally an official government position. I mean, I I, I think um, I think this is one of these under underplayed aspects of this. Uh, in fact, undoing it will be one of the most difficult things. Yeah, it's not so easy we to undo now. Come it, to think of each other as just vectors of germs. Yes. Um, rather than people to get to know and and uh, enjoy and and learn from, yeah. or you know, do stuff with. I mean, I don't know. Like it's, it's it's I think how to how to repair that connection is going to be it's going to be a very very difficult challenge. Absolutely agree. And I guess the last thing I'd say on this point before we we talk about the overall takeaway message. The last thing I'd say on this point is that for years to come after this. Uh, with what just what has happened to date, um, there will be more and more stories of children coming out of the woodwork saying that when I was home, I was uh, sexually abused and I was physically abused for months. I had no one to tell and no one came to my rescue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's abuse is picked up in, in schools. Yeah. So p- putting this all together on the schools issue, um, I guess I, I'd say, um, what's your takeaway? Should we be doing everything humanly possible to getting schools running in person less than 12 yeah, or less than 16? That yeah. should be, if not the number one national yeah. priority, pretty darn close to it. It is absolutely, not even less than 12. I'd say even even into uh, even into uh, college. Uh, college. Yeah. I think I think colleges should be open. I think, I think schools should be open. Now, we have to take precautions, of course. We should treat them as essential businesses, just like we treated other essential businesses. This is an absolutely vital function of our society, and we've decided for some reason that it's dispensable. It makes no sense yeah. to me. I mean, the evidence is on this is so strong from a scientific perspective. And if you just look at the COVID side, even that, the risk is, is to the people that we're, we're, we're sort of dealing with, which is the kids and these college kids, uh, the risk is really low. We're essentially asking them to give up their part of their future so that I, the 52-year-old, can have a, a, a marginally decreased risk of, of getting COVID. Well, and then I would also argue that um, th- that you, the 52-year-old, or someone, the 64-year-old, will have a marginally decreased risk. That is uncertain as well. It's not entirely clear that you will have. It's potentially possible that by these kids getting infected and overcoming it, the risk to you might actually be better in the future too. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the key thing is, again, the non-homogenous mixing, yes. right? So if if it's the case that they that, that uh, it runs through that that group, yes, um, and that, so that essentially they they've reached a point where uh, yeah. th- there's no additional infections in that group. They're the ones who con- connect with other adults, right? Uh, I interact with fifty year olds. I'm not if I I won't get it, but if I if I happen to interact with my students and they don't have it because they've already had it, yeah, um, then then I mean that's that's one mechanism of sort of a sort of uh, addressing a respiratory infection like this. Let's talk about stopping rules. I mean, one of the things that troubles me about this space is that people have set up a stopping rule that is an illogical stopping rule. So what do I mean a stopping rule? When you run a clinical study, of course, if something bad happens at a certain number of bad outcomes, you're going to stop the whole thing. You don't want any more of that happening. Um, In this case, colleges, the stopping rule has been the number of COVID infections. Um, uh, that's not a sensible stopping rule. The stopping rule, I think, should be the number of hospitalizations. If you have hundreds of kids hospitalized, okay, then we're going to stop. But merely having a, a, a mild COVID case in a, in a kid, 
um, it, that to me is it's not a, it's not the the bad enough outcome to stop the process. What are your thoughts on we that? Had none. We had no. I, I mean, I think we've had we've reopened schools that fall. Uh, the, the schools that reopened in the fall have had tens of thousands of cases, and not a single hospitalization. As far as, as far as I know, if there's one or two, I, I mean, it might ha- it might have happened, but it's very very rare. Yeah. Um, uh, and no deaths, right? And no so, deaths. Yeah. Uh, At uh, least so in colleges. Think, yeah. Yeah. The co- college students, yeah. right? So I think I think the um, I think uh, there is a negative side effect from test excess testing, and that negative side effect is panic, right? So and it, it's led to needless shutdowns as opposed to like I mean what you would, what could lead to is like okay we have we're having what looks like to be in a little bit of an outbreak uh, like a it's not even an outbreak a set of people who are get, getting the the the, the, uh, the the evidence of the virus um, let's take some more precautions about the, the slowing the spread. But that that may involve like you know more more PPEs having some of the classes more online. I mean I don't know what. Yes. But the, but it can't be let's shut the school down because yes. the, the harm from shutting the school down is so high. Yes. And and certainly if they, and then if it shut the school down and send the kids home, that's even worse. That's a that's the dumbest yeah. thing I've ever heard. Um, actually, yeah. I, so can I say one more point about the about the testing about uh, uh, testing for people who are really really low risk. Um, in, in addition to causing panic, it's actually it's kind of futile because if you really want to understand disease spread. Testing for PCR case PCR is really just a, it's a mistake in some sense, right? You're not uh, you're, you're you're looking for virus viral loads that are really low. They're, they may or may not be infectious. Um, and then furthermore, if you really want to understand how many cases there actually are, well, we already know it's like somewhere in the order of ten to you know six to twenty four times. That's what CDC says. Then then the number of cases that are identified. Um, well, I mean, I think I mean what what what's okay? So you look at a blip in case here and there. But we know it's uh, it, it doesn't run in, in parallel or proportion. There's six to twenty five times more cases floating out there that you've never caught. Yeah. Um, what what for? What's the purpose of like staring at these case numbers as if it were a guide to policy when it shouldn't be? Yeah, and I guess that the the case numbers can mislead in a couple ways. One, I mean, as we pointed out, I don't think I don't think it's the right stopping rule. If you there's going to be a stopping rule, it should be some hard outcome where people are really suffering, not really yes, getting hospitalizations, hospitalizations or, or death. Absolutely, yeah. And and then the next thing is, if we had a ticker up there next to the number of COVID cases that showed the number of kids being sexually abused, physically abused, um, suicidality, um, thinking, and, and the number of years of life lost from their longevity, you had all those tickers up there, I think people would feel different. I mean, the tickers, it is a powerful psychological thing to see that ticker yeah. go up. Yeah. And, and, and the excuse can't be all those numbers are uncertain. Yeah. But because, I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, God knows that these, the numbers that we see on COVID are uncertain. But we just, we absolutely, the psychological salience of the cost of the policies have to be uh, put in front of the public just, just same as the benefits. Yeah. You can't just say, oh, look at the benefits alone and pretend like there's no cost or don't make this, the cost psychologically salient. Real people are killing themselves. Real people are suffering, uh, you know, catastrophic loss to their in, their income. Real people are 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 not bringing their kids to get vaccinated. Real people are not uh, going to get chemotherapy because they're too scared of COVID to, to go to the hospital. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's happening. Yeah. Um, make let make those costs salient because they should be salient. 
Now let's talk about the world as it is. You know, we we made a point that um, uh, that we have to treat the world as it is, not as we wish it were. Um, one of the ways that feeds into the schools discussion, which I think my we can finish the schools discussion with this, is I did some in, you know so I spent some time trying to figure out which schools are actually closed, which schools are actually open, and I felt there were some sort of serious differences. So one is um, you know a lot of private daycares are actually open because of course they're private; they can do as they wish for, for you know they have a lot of uh, freedom. A lot of private schools are open. A lot of my doctor colleagues. Um, they're sending their kids to school. Um, and and they, they say things like, well, if they were at home, I'd be going crazy and they'd be going crazy too. You know, of course. I mean, that's how people feel. Um, a lot of states are, different states have different sort of appetites for risk. And there are a lot of states where they're pushing kids to school. And I hated to say it, but when I looked at a map, it looked to me like there was sort of a red state, blue state divide. And it was, so then I, I took it away and to say that like, really, the policy discussion here is not open schools, closed schools. It's really, a lot of people are going to open schools. For-profit college is going to open college. They're going to try their best. They need the money. The places that are closing are, the real question is, in a bunch of blue states and poorer districts, are you going to close the schools there or not? Or are you going to join everyone else? That's the real policy yeah. question. Yeah, I completely agree. This, 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 this sort of like is this inequality angle that that does that sort of people don't understand it, um, which is really important here, right? So, yeah. uh, you've you've heard of these pods, right, where people yes. will hire essentially teachers to come and teach three or four kids in the that, that are you know, neighbors of each other yes. or something, um, so that they can learn to read as a first grader. Whereas, and, like, yeah. if you're poor. You don't have I that mean, luxury. Okay, you can learn your your first grader is going to learn to read over Zoom, I guess. I mean, if that's possible. Yeah, um, if that's possible. And 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 you and I want to be clear, and I, I'm sure you'll agree that um, we no one will fault someone for putting their kid in a pod. People will do anything for their kids, and that's to be expected and natural and good. Um, the problem is that society has to help the kids that the parents are not positioned to help. I mean, that's the purpose yeah, of yeah, public if, schooling. If you, if you care about inequality, you should be you should yeah. be at the front lines of wanting the schools open. I mean, that is absolutely the case. It, it helps the poor the most. Yes. Um, I, I, like and, and and basically asking the poor to say, look, uh, uh, let you send your kids to this online school, uh, online only education. Okay, yeah, you don't have uh, you don't have internet. I mean, I, I saw this I saw this picture in the San Jose Mercury News of two little kids, uh, I think Hispanic kids with a with their Google Chrome laptops. Yeah, the, 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 the Taco Bell. Yeah. Yeah, because they had no internet access at home. They're sitting outside the Taco Bell with the internet access, and they're going to do school outside the Taco Bell on the on the on the street all year. That's a that's, you know, seven years old or six years. I mean, I just it's just not right. I mean, I I think that um that is a hundred percent not right. I think one of the missed opportunities, as, as I see it in the in the pandemic, is um. You know, we've, we we can talk more about some some of the may, maybe missteps we've made along the way, but I think one of the missed opportunities is this might have been an opportunity to try to uh, create some sort of equitable distribution of the internet and, and things like that, and try to to fix some of these sort of long term infrastructure problems that some progressives have been beating on about, including myself, because I actually fall on the progressive side of the spectrum, uh, which it makes it more interesting where I fall on on the schools issue yeah, with the conservative yeah, side. Yeah, these are not. I really I don't understand. Yeah, why this I, became I, political. Why is this pol political? Like yeah. these are like fundamental values that everyone shares. Like let's educate our kids. I, I don't think there's a single. I mean, maybe there's some crazy person, but like I don't think I think that is something that unites the right and the left. At least, at least my understanding it does. Um, like you know, I, I, let, let's let's treat people with uh, human dignity. Let's let's account for all of the costs and benefits of of policies. Those are like not political questions. Those are like those are just you know 
I, I mean, I, I write with people I disagree with all the time. Yes. Um, I, politically, but we, we look at the data together and we decide, okay, but, but as far as like the values are concerned, what, what do we care about? You know, largely, I think the, pol- the, the, the politics overblows them. Right? People care about all the, the same kinds of things. We don't want to be poor. We want to be able to do our business. We want to be able to educate our kids. We want to, uh, we, we want to pick, keep ourselves safe from disease, not just one disease, but lots of diseases. We want we want healthcare when when it's you know when when we get sick. I, all those things I think are are sh- the right and left share. Let's talk about politics for a second. Um, you know, I, I think we do have to also acknowledge that you know th- you're right. We we th- these sorts of values that you've espoused are values that everybody agrees with. We share. At the same time, we are find ourselves in a unique situation in this country that's just so divided. Um, it, it, I think it's a mistake to think that a lot of those divisions are policy issues. I think I'm not exactly convinced, and I'm not sure the data shows that people are always voting based with policy decision A, B, and C in mind. And the platforms of the two political parties are are odd hodgepodges of policy mixes. They they're not always sort of a a rational policy bundle. Um, a lot of people are also voting based on culture and the culture of, you know, what the left is viewed as, which is sort of an apologist, um, uh, shame on you, kind of we are better than you, holier than thou culture. I mean, that's how people view it. And the right as sort of a we don't care about, you know, rough and tumble kind of, I mean, these kind of just really kind of, kind of branding um, that have kind of become synonymous with sort of the extreme political polls. But, you know, we live in a time where people are very divided and we have a leader who um, doesn't do a good job of uh, bringing people together and has had so many things that perhaps unnecessarily inflammatory and have angered people. And so I guess I'm not surprised that there's a faction of people out there who hate hate this guy's guts. They don't like anything about him. Um, if he says the sun rises in the east, they're going to say the sun rises in the west. You know, it, uh, uh, that's the way it's gotten. Um, but I guess it surprised me a little bit. Um, that academics couldn't sort of just take a step back and just say, I'm just going to ignore everything he says and come to my own conclusions on these issues. One of the things I found quite interesting was, you know, when you very early on in the pandemic, um, we're one of the first few people to just point out that there are serious downsides to the policy intervention uh, as well. Um, that was something that was a message that, you know, many people felt was clearly um, uh, similar to the message that I think Trump was offering. And therefore, I think the allegation was that you, you know, you, you and, and John and others are were sleeper agents for the right. And I thought, you know, it's a real, it's a long con that Jay Bot has been playing. Fifty years he's been here, quiet, minding his own business, doing good policy, doing his economics work, and then fifty-two, boom, he comes out. He's a sleeper agent for the right. That's why he's doing I mean, what he's saying. What do you think about this sort of worldview that you are a sleeper, you're hiding uh, sleeper cell? I mean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The, the, look, um, I, I think there are real differences between the right and left. Absolutely, like there, there's some things where right and left a- actually disagree. Yeah. Um, I've spent my entire career at the intersection trying to bring data. To I mean, like my, I, there was a, a debate. Uh, I, I learned what this when I, one of the formative things I learned about it, 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 it that led me into economics was this debate uh, between Paul Samuelson and and Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Milton famously on the right and Paul famously on the left. Um, uh, and I was a polite dis- dis- disagreement. The issue was, um, do, do the right and left, do they differ because of differences in values or do they differ because of differences in, in how they perceive facts about the way the world works? Oh, interesting. Okay. 
Um, and Samuelson's point was, well, look, so obviously values differ, and that plays an important role. I think he's right. Absolutely, values do differ, and they sometimes lead to different differences of opinion. I not see. not on the things I think we've talked about, yes, like yes. for kids and things like that, but I think for, for, for a lot of things, that's absolutely true. Um, and Friedman's point is, well, look, what is what can we as economists, as, as scientists do, other than to try to to make a common base of data from which the right and left can sit and disagree? Then we know, what, what, if we've done our job, then we've done that, that the disagreements that are left really are values and we couldn't have done much better than that. Yes. I mean, I spent my career trying to, uh, bring, uh, bring data to bear so that the right, right and left or whoever, whatever sides can have a common, common place from, uh, to talk about, uh, your policy disagreements so that we can focus on the fundamental differences, not on, oh, does, does, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, does, does, does loneliness increase or decrease health spending? I mean, whatever it is, like, right. does, 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 uh, does do, you know, do, do uh, does ex- increasing the number of years of of of, of uh, uh, residency does what does that do to you know how how well the residents are training or whatever? I mean, yes. whatever, whatever the th- hours of work. I mean, it's just these are like factual things that you I've spent my career doing. I mean, I have political opinions just like anybody else, but I try I've tried very very hard to keep them apart because I don't think they're all that interesting, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to me, this is from the beginning has never been a political question. This is just. Let's look at the cost and benefit, and this and the policy itself, the lockdown policy, is, is to me is the is probably is almost the most actually almost is the most consequential policy decision uh, in public health that we've made I've, I've ever seen. I think it's going to shape the next hundred years. I mean, it's probably going to be the single greatest uh, ex- natural experiment or or human made experiment in our in our lives. Yeah, and so what, we should treat it with the same way, with the same kind of framework we treat it, we treat any other policy. Let's let's consider the costs and the benefits. And in the early days, it was, all, in fact, I think to, to some extent still now, but still like now, less yeah, so, I think so. Yeah. We only people were only talking about the benefits, yes, as if there were there, there was no other choice. The world was going to come to an end if we didn't do this, and, and, and where the data didn't support that. Yes, I, I think, think John, I mean, that's, yeah, John came out early. John Ianides came yeah. out early on for, for just pointing that out, pointing that out. I mean, I, I had that sense early on as well. I, I think. Um, and the, and this 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 discussion about the cost was completely absent in a way that was frustrating to me because there's a lot of these costs that we, you and I have talked about them that were foreseeable. And now that doesn't mean we shouldn't have done the lockdown at all. I mean there was obviously a lot of uncertainty. I think reasonable people might have differed on the on that uh, at the at the time. But at this point, I don't think it's reasonable anymore. I yeah, I mean, the I guess lockdown is not reasonable. The I guess costs are overwhelming. I guess yeah. I mean, I think. I, I think that that's the case, um, but I also, I, I mean, I think there, there, the calls to to reinstitute a lockdown are are uh, there are some. There are people who say it. There are a lot of people who believe it. Particularly um, the people on Twitter um, uh, who are, have a certain view of this issue. Uh, but I think the real appetite for it is is gone. I think, and I, I doubt it'll actually happen. Um, and I think in the initial period, um, the one question I have about lockdown was, um, and and we will learn this from I think some policy some policy papers will tease this out that lockdown uh, struck different counties at different times, but cellular phone data may show that patterns of behavior changed in lockstep. So I'm I'm actually not sure it it did that much difference. It was the fear that may be a bigger driver. But you know this will take years and years to sort of fully tease out what were the implications. But one thing I want give yeah, one flipped right. So yeah. like in February there wasn't no, there wasn't like this undue fear. Yes, it was, the public health messaging was, was yeah. actually not unreasonable. Like this is there's this threat. Uh, let's let's pay close attention to it. Let's let's you know sort of uh, uh, operate around it. it, it but it, overnight, uh, sometime in early March, the, it, the the public health messaging turned into panic mode, 
and everybody panicked. Yeah. And then lockdowns followed one after the other shortly after that. Um, I think that is going to, that's going to require a lot of interesting, uh, a, a lot, a, a lot of careful study. Like what, what led to that flip? It wasn't evidence. It wasn't. Yeah. It was, I mean, I think one of the key events was the Imperial College model, which is now found to be a little off, <laughs> a little inaccurate, but it was a key event because that model, uh, I mean, it, it, it would, it predicted. It's an IFR of 1%. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, I mean, just orders, you know, like five to five times off. Yeah. Five times off. But it, it, stro it, st it stoked a lot of fear and it actually made it to, uh, you know, the White House and influencing policy at the, at the, at the highest levels. Uh, one thing All around the world, I mean, it's not yeah. just, and you, yeah, and around the world, Trump. yeah. I mean, it's not just Trump, right? Everyone, uh, countries around the world, I think, with the exception of Sweden, have responded with the same policy to a certain, uh, like more greater or lesser degree. Yeah, and um, I guess and, uh, I'm I'm glad Sweden didn't change because the UK for a while they were re resisting and they almost did something different. But the reason it's important to have some countries do something different is it'll allow us someday to figure out what actually worked and what didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think that that um, that's going to take. I mean, I, I agree with you. This is something we we're going to be studying for the rest of our lives in some sense. Like we just, um, and in fact, I I I'd say even stronger. Like I think if we're gonna if we're gonna have a policy like this that gives public health authorities this kind of power, we need some checks and balances in place that require much better data and information in order to justify it before they're allowed to do it. Because yes. the, 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 the data uh, in early March was not good enough to support this and no consideration of costs at all. There needs to there needs to be in that discussion some consideration of costs and benefits, not just not just benefits of a, of a policy of this consequence. I mean, if you think about who are the driving sort of much of the discussion around COVID-19, I never would have guessed that it is a handful of people who are academics of different disciplines who are very, very active on Twitter. I mean, I, I think that the oversized role of social media in the pandemic will someday kind of play. Uh, you know, it, it's not always the people who've been doing this for a living. It's some of the people who've had really big Twitter followings have reached the ear of reporters and, and they've sort of controlled, I think, a lot of the narrative around this topic. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't do Twitter. For you don't do Twitter, so you don't see yeah, what I that, see. Uh, but yeah, but I, I, um, I, I do hear you. I mean, there's... there's um, People will send me, uh, you know, sort of yeah. screenshots of people uh, like stoking panic. I, I think, um, and the platform promotes fear. Like if you say fearful things, if you say shame on you, outrage things, those are things that the algorithms support. I mean, they they drive those things. Yeah, I think I think some some, some mechanisms so where we have a counterbalancing force. That, that I mean, look, panic. I guess it's possible that panic could be the right response to some set of facts. Yeah. Um, it's hard to imagine uh, what what those would be. Like you know, like we, we famously the the uh, FDR says in the middle midst of the probably the darkest time in the 20th century in the, for the United States, you know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, right? Mm, yeah. um, I mean, I think that uh, that that kind of uh, sort of like countervailing, you know, like it's natural to panic in the face of bad news, the really really bad news, um, but like some sort of like countervailing me uh, messaging where look. Uh, we shouldn't be panicked. We should we should think this through this reasonably and think through and then take appropriate action based on what the data. That's always better. I'd be. I mean, yeah. My view. 
Now, the the one thing I wanted to mention or talk about real quick is, um, you know, in John's commentary in mid March in Stat, um, he he speculated about a number of sort of low probability um, consequences of lockdown, and one he wrote was civil unrest and societal instability. Um, you know, I I I'm not sure um, if we've seen that yet, but we have had some, I think, increasing political tensions. Oh. It's a- I, I I read it I read it consistent with John I think yeah. I think the I think the uh, it's frayed nerves the lockdown frayed nerves uh, especially among younger younger people yes um, and uh, a, a lot of the I I, I, it, I I it's hard for me to, to see what's happened uh, over the summer and the uh, the riots and the protests and the in, in, in enormous civil unrest and not connected in some way to that to the the, the, the fraying of, uh, of of connections between people people were hungry for that and and it and uh of course it's the middle of a, of a it's it's over identified like because there's there's the middle of a, of a very contentious uh um election season and uh, there, there's all kinds of other things that, that are that might lead you know, yes. there's, 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 there's an election uh, season or floyd yeah there's a there's a video uh, I mean, of, of a police officer killing a guy begging for his life yeah I mean, so there's, yeah, there's, it's, it's, yeah but, it's certainly but yeah, over identified but yeah. i think i don't think I, I mean i think it'd be hard to rule john out altogether like yes. a, a, that has played some role and, and you're seeing this uh, in lots of places these these sort of like frayed nerves spilling over into into uh civil unrest lots and lots of places and i want to um, push on that a little bit more and say um when one reads history books i've been reading a lot of history books about europe in the 1920s some of the preconditions that allowed i think the worst of of uh, of of the dictators to take over and the, the preconditions for world war 2 were you had a populace that was coming out of world war 1 and they felt um there was income inequality there was um a lot of a uh, 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 restriction on jobs um and people in germany i think didn't feel like they had a lot of outlets um you had sort of a a charismatic demagogue leader come uh blame somebody scapegoat you know scapegoat different um racial and ethnic minorities um i guess one of my concerns is that we have yet to fully feel the brunt of uh all the income redistribution that's going to happen from covid um the the stage is set i think for the next decade that it's not going to be trump it might be somebody who has their act together a little bit more somebody who is hearts in a darker place um but that kind of politician not just in the united states but globally the stage is ripe for those types of politicians what are your thoughts i mean i, I actually i was thinking about it more like pre-1914 okay pre-world like war one civilization okay. death wish that's the, that's i mean okay now i'm completely out of my league sure. you brought me here so, yes. so i'm blaming you um uh like i you know i i uh i remember reading um about the history of the of the run-up to world war one yes um, I believe these like these like great civilizations of, of Europe, essentially tired. Mm. Uh, that that's the thought that has run through my mm. head. Mm -hmm. A lot of this epidemic is like it's we have this like civilization that has brought a billion people out of poverty in the yeah. last twenty years, and yeah. somehow we just have decided it's not worth it anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Give that up to, in order to address this disease. Um, I mean, I mean, okay. Now I'm completely out of my depth. So, but uh, but uh, that that thought has run through my head through this. I'm uh, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, let me let me just end more optimistic sure. on that. Then. I mean, I I think we, that's that's up to us. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we should we should work our hardest to to help that not happen. Um, both your vision and my dark vision. Like we should, we, you know. And I think um, uh, telling people, you know, like, treating people humanely thinking about what they're what, you know, treating people as if they have true you know true individual dignity um all that i think 
unites us. I really do. I don't. I don't believe. I don't. And my friends on the right, I don't believe are are, are, are have want that dark vision. And my friends on the left also don't want that dark vision. They they want uh, what we want is to 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 uh, use the resources we have wisely, shepherd them so that uh, the, the even the least among us have opportunities. Um, I think that that vision can can come true. We just need to make it real. Yes, and that's that's a nice, I think, optimistic way to to close. I guess uh, I guess uh, maybe we'll just leave it there because I had a couple of things jotted down, but I think we've done a I think a nice job. I I think it's important to focus on the schools issue because I think the schools issue is the issue um, where we can I think potentially appeal to people who may be more locked in on other parts of this argument. But the schools, I think, is clear. The calculus tips, I think, the way it tips in your mind. Uh, that, that's how I came to it. I mean, I started just reading a lot in all these buckets, putting papers in buckets. And that's how I felt like, well, that's, yeah. that's my takeaway conclusion. It's, mean, a, it's, it's a great error. It's, it's, a, it's, it's overwhelming, right? As yeah. soon as you start reading the papers, yeah. the published literature, it's not, it's not subtle. Yeah. They're all saying the same thing. And it's, some of it's surprising, like this, the, the, the spread. But that, but that one is an area where like, I think a lot of people... Uh, it sort of unites generations. Like parents want their kids to go to school. The kids actually, sh- even if, if, if they if they may like summer vacation, but this extended thing is not good for them. They yes. know it. Um, grandparents want their, their grandkids to be educated. I mean, I think this is one of these issues where the science and uh, our desires line up. And we just have to overcome our fear. Yeah. And I guess maybe the last thing I'll mention real quick is, you know, there are a lot of parallels and dissimilarities, I think, between uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the 1957 flu. Uh, the ultimate IFR, I think, of the 57 flu came in between 0.2 and 0.3. But people reacted very differently. And if, if I think about it, it was just a different generation back then. The folks living through the 1957 flu had seen depression. They had seen World War. Um, they... Uh, were of a different mindset, I think. And 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 the 1957 flu, uh, you know, in many books, it doesn't even exist. It's not even a noteworthy event. Um, do you think it's something about where we are as a culture that that has changed the changed since then? What what is the difference? I mean, I think I think this this uh, actually it could be an ironic outcome of the fact that life expectancies have gone up. Yes, that we we were doing right? better. Yeah, an ironic right? outcome. So like yeah. we 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 uh, we fear death more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, if, if, if the initial, the initial reports were three or 4%, uh, case fatality rate, and people mistook that to mean that everyone that got infected is going to have a 3% chance of dying. Um, uh, but, the, but I mean, uh, would I live my life completely the same with the 3% chance of dying if I get this? No, I, I would change some yes. behavior. Would I want the civilization to shut down altogether? Uh, no, I would not. I would want some mechanism of of, uh, of continuing those things I value, and just extending my life and continuing my life is not the only value I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true for everybody. I don't think the mere fact of survival is not the only thing that we hold dear to us. Yes. Um, uh, as with two in a thousand, three in a thousand overall. I guess it would depend partly on the distribution, right? So if it was yes. if it was young people that yes. faced that very high risk, I would be in favor. I have three kids. Uh, I'd be very, very strongly in favor of more, uh, more restrictive, uh, uh, more more active uh, k- kinds of things. Um, I have an eighty year old mom. I, I I think that 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 uh, the, the the kind of restrictions I'm willing to put up with are very different if it's if it's hitting the young more than. But but at two and to three and a thousand. Yeah, for the most part, we should just we should figure out a way to live with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the fact that we know know that it is this age uh, that, that has this such a big difference in age, well, that that points to a good policy, like a policy that protects the the, the vulnerable, the old older people, 
Um, we made huge mistakes with the nursing homes, uh, not just us, the United States, but lots of other countries. Other countries. I mean, by sending people back with positive test results to, and, and to nursing homes that are chronically underfunded and don't have PPE yeah. and have I circulating mean, staff you, among nursing homes. That was a huge, that's like sending a missile I mean, that, right that, in that, there. New York, uh, New York, but like, but you yeah. know, to be fair, like Sweden made a similar mistake. Yeah, similar they made a similar mistake. mistake yeah. Yeah, so I think it's not just. I mean, I think I think that that but that's. I mean, it's something that you can understand when we didn't have the information. Now we have this information. Let's and we ha- we kind of understand sort of what we have to do. Well, some people on uh, the other side they push back and they say, uh, "Well, how are you going to protect the elderly only?" And then I say, "But I mean, but your argument is that we all isolate. How are you going to do that? I mean, they both have a big how question component, but you know, one yeah, acknowledges that the age gradient, one doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean, I, I, mean, I think. You know, you can't per- promise perfect safety. Yes, anybody, you can't. Right? Exactly. But, but you can say what the costs are going to be. Like you, you really, you're going to ask people to, uh, in order to reduce community spread. I mean, that's really the thinking, right? So let's reduce community spread by what? By uh, by locking everybody in and paying enormous costs that they, it, with a positive external benefit potentially. That's the argument, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the the cost itself of the of the of the uh, intervention is enormous for the person paying it. And uh, the, the, the benefit is small because the, for the community spread involves my interacting with my 80-year-old mom. Well, if I know she's at risk, I'm going to interact with her less. Yes. Yes. Right? Um, and uh, the, the economist logic, which is this, uh, we need a Pigouvian tax to internalize the externality, the Pigouvian, right? So the problem with that logic is uh, the tax needs to be proportionate with the behavior you want to reduce. Right. If you if the tax is so large, well, you're going to be you're going to go far out the other end of the social optimum. You're not going to get a social optimum. Mm-hmm. What you're going to get is a, a bunch of pissed off people who have paid a huge amount of uh, of cost, both in terms of their kids' education uh, and their own livelihoods, uh, with not much benefit to the to the to the community that they're trying to protect. Why not use our resources to protect that community? Yes. And think of creative ways to do that. Instead of uh, this indirect policy that actually I don't think has worked. Yes, I mean I think that that that's a that's a sensible thing, and I guess at a minimum I hope that um, in the near future we will be able to at least sit down and have this discussion without claims of um, I think all sorts of ridiculous claims and smears and anger and vitriol. It used to be the case that academics could sit down and discuss these things, and we wouldn't always agree, even at the end of the day. But at least we could have the discussion. So, Doctor Bhattacharya, yeah, well, I'm, gl- yeah I'm I'm grateful right. for you to come on the podcast and walk us through your thinking. I think it's very informative um, and, and and very helpful. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity, Vinay. It was nice to get to a, a chance to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for coming. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klausner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.